Today I'm speaking with Evan Thompson. Evan is a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia and a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. And he's the author of several books. Most relevant for our purposes is a recent book titled Why I Am Not a Buddhist. And I brought Evan on here because I knew we would disagree about many things. He is a scientifically very well-informed philosopher, but as you'll hear, it comes at these issues from a different angle than I do. This is one of those conversations that many of you will find frustrating, so I drop it here with that caveat. I never know in advance how these conversations are going to go. I engage certain people for the express purpose of pressure testing some of my views and ways of talking about meditation and the mind. Some of what gets discovered are mere differences of emphasis, and some are just genuine differences of view. And in many of these conversations, it can be very hard to figure out what's what. And sometimes we don't succeed. So I invite you to make of this what you will. We cover many interesting topics at the foundations of science, how we can understand the mind, what role meditation might play there. We talk about the ways in which Buddhism may or may not be exceptional as a source of insight here, the way in which culture is inextricable from certain spiritual insights, or the way in which certain insights can transcend culture, depending on your view. So this is another one of those experiments in conversation where the results may not always be pretty, but you may find them valuable and instructive nonetheless. And now I bring you Evan Thompson. I am here with Evan Thompson. Evan, thanks for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. So I, I'm really excited about this conversation because it, it seems to promise both a lot of common ground and interesting disagreement, which, which sounds like it should be commonplace, but that's not the usual conversation for me. So it's I'm looking forward to this. And it's focused around your book, Why I'm Not a Buddhist, especially. I mean, we can touch on other things in your work, perhaps, but this book was, I think, incredibly useful. And I say that even though I am singled out among a few other people for criticism in the book, I think there's a lot of semantic confusion, perhaps, between us, or at least different associations with words, which we want to clean up. But I also don't consider myself a Buddhist for reasons that, that overlap with some of the reasons you give in your book. So I'm just, it'll be interesting to get into that. But before we do, perhaps you can just summarize your biography. How do you think about yourself and, and what kinds of topics you have focused on? Yeah. So my biography is one that goes back really to my childhood and my upbringing. I, you know, I grew up as a kid in the 1970s in an alternative educational institute and community that was founded by my father, William Irwin Thompson, and it was called the Lindisfarne Association. And we had a lot of resident teachers in the community from different spiritual traditions, meditation teachers, contemplative teachers from, from you know, Buddhist traditions, Sufi traditions, Hindu traditions, Christian traditions. And it was an alternative 
intellectual salon, I suppose you could say. My, my dad brought together scientists and artists and poets and activists, environmentalists, philosophers. He himself was a university professor who left the university to, to start the Lindisfarne Association. And that was the atmosphere I grew up in. So I was exposed to philosophical, scientific, contemplative, spiritual ideas, you know, really from my, from my childhood going forward. And then I got my undergraduate degree in Asian studies from Amherst College. I, I specialized at that point in Chinese language and Chinese history and then sort of progressively moved into studying Asian philosophy, which then really took me into the study of philosophy as a graduate student. And I wound up working in the area of cognitive science closely also with Francisco Varela, mm. who may be known to, I know he's known to you and certainly to some of your listeners. He was a neuroscientist and a Tibetan Buddhist who, who really pioneered the science Buddhism conversation. He was the founding scientist of the Mind and Life Institute. And I, I met him as a kid when I was at Lindisfarne. And when I was in grad school working in philosophy, I got drawn into cognitive science. So this was in the 1980s when cognitive science was, especially in philosophy, was, was in its kind of early heyday. Um, there was a lot of excitement around it. So I got drawn into that and then wound up working with Francisco on science and Buddhist philosophy. And that led to our first book called The Embodied Mind, Cognitive Science and Human Experience, co-written with the psychologist Eleanor Roche. And that's really the kind of work that I've continued to do as a professor. I'm a professor of philosophy with associate membership in the Department of Psychology and the Department of Asian Studies. And I work in the area of philosophy of mind, cognitive science, Asian philosophy, cross-cultural philosophy. And, and my recent books have, have all been written from that perspective. Great, great. Yeah, so you've had an unusually privileged view of the, the intersection between East and West here, especially on the topic of of the nature of the mind and and just the way in which Buddhism and Eastern thought generally has been influencing the sciences of the mind, and you've had that from a you know as you point out from a very young age growing up in your your father's planned community, and I I'm trying to figure out if we've ever met. It would be surprising to me if we hadn't we met. Yeah, what, we met once. We met once. I was thinking about this recently. It was at the. Mind and Life Summer Research Institute, mm -hmm. and it would have been 2005, 2006, right. I would say, around then. I think that's the only time we've met. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, because, you know, you, we both helped organize that. I mean, you, I think you were officially organizing it. I was sort of behind the scenes talking to Richie Davison and Joseph Goldstein, and we'd organized a Vipassana retreat for scientists, I guess, the, maybe the year before that. That's right. If the sequence That's is right. correct. Yeah. So I was actually supposed to be at that retreat. There were there were a number of retreats that were co-organized, I suppose you could say, by by IMS, by the Insight Meditation Society and by the Mind and Life Institute. And the very first one I was supposed to attend, but I actually then at the last moment wasn't able to. And so I attended the one that was the second year. So these were, right. you know, the sort of standard Mahasi Sayadaw kind of seven-day Vipassana, introductory Vipassana format, specifically designed for scientists and clinicians. So I, I attended that, would have been, I think, 2008, around there. And there had been one the previous year, which I believe you attended. Yeah. Because I remember reading something you wrote about it, though later I couldn't I couldn't find that piece. Right. So, yeah, right. it's just to say we, we, we intersected almost <laughs> in, in those retreats as well. And, and this intersection through Francisco is interesting. So Francisco Varela, as you just said, it was 
this pivotal figure for the convergence of Tibetan Buddhism in particular and cognitive science, and he spawned the, the Mind and Life Institute, which has been the series of meetings between Western scientists and the Dalai Lama, organized around various topics. And uh, Francisco was has a kind of an outsized importance in my life, outsized because I, I spent very little time with him. I, I certainly didn't know him well. I, I think I only hung out with him maybe three or four times sometimes over the course of, of some days. I, mean, I went to one of the Mind and Life meetings in Dharamsala, and then we met in, in New Mexico once. And, but I logged very few hours with him, but he was both instrumental in getting me into neuroscience and into Dzogchen practice. And if you know anything about my uh, intellectual biography, those are such major contributions to it. It's to say that I owe him a, a debt of gratitude is, is a massive understatement. He, he wrote me a, a letter of recommendation to get into graduate school after I kind of decided that I, w I wanted to turn toward neuroscience, for which I didn't really have the background at that point, rather than philosophy. I had been planning to do a, a philosophy PhD, and some conversation with, with Francisco helped me decide otherwise. And he also was the person who pointed me to Tukorgan when I was still trying to sort things out, being a, a disgruntled Vipassana practitioner. And so that it's just been an enormous contribution to my life. And in terms of the inputs from him, it amounts to all of two hours of his conscious attention, <laughs> you know, to affect my life in that way. So, I mean, you, you had much more to do with him having written a book together and, and uh, you know, working in his lab and all of that. How would you summarize his contribution to the topics we're going to discuss? Yeah, well, let me say first, actually, it's nice to hear your your history with him. He he had a, a huge influence on me. I would say he, along with my parents, are probably the people who have had the most formative influence on me. I you know I met Francisco when he was when I was fourteen years old. He would have been about thirty thirty one. This was at a conference that my dad organized with other figures like the physicist David Finkelstein and, and uh, anthropologist, kind of systems theorist Gregory Bateson. And Francisco became like an older brother and an, and an uncle to me over the years. And, and then we actually wound up working together and, and collaborating on, on a number of things, including the embodied mind and then, and then other things we wrote up to the time of his death in, in 2001. So, so he's, you know, loomed extremely large over over my life and and thinking and and in a way the book why i'm not a buddhist is a is a reflection on on some aspects of that that i only really came to realize well really in the course of writing that book actually you know we might talk more about that later but but to directly answer your question i would say that francisco was one of a number of scientists who in the 1970s and 1980s really began to try to create a conversation about the nature of contemplative practice, the, the scientific investigation of contemplative practice. And in Francisco's case, which and this is what makes him unique, I would say, is that Francisco had a very, he was a very philosophical scientist, had a strong philosophical training and a, and a, and a very strong philosophical temperament. And he was very interested in Buddhism not simply for, for let's say, for meditation practice and for a, a spiritual path, for lack of a better word, 
He was interested in it for its rich philosophical tradition of, of thinking about the mind. And that strongly influenced his own work in neuroscience and the way that he approached the science Buddhism dialogue in creating the early meetings with scientists in, in Dharamsala and then in creating the, the Mind and Life Institute. And, I, you know, I think of him as, as really the one who, who made the kinds of conversations that we see happening today possible. Uh, the conversation has gone in, you know, m multiple directions since his death. And, you know, if he had lived longer, the conversation might have gone, it certainly would, would have gone in, in other directions as well. But I would say that it, it, you know, it's fair to say that he's he's really one of the principal scientists re responsible for for this interest that that we now see. Mm. Okay, so let, let's jump into the topics at hand. There are a few places we can start. Well, so you you're very critical of what you call Buddhist modernism, which this is kind of joined at the hip with Buddhist exceptionalism. And so we should talk about those things. And just so briefly, they, they amount to the claim that Buddhism is, is unique among the world's religions in that the proponents of these views, both Buddhist modernism and Buddhist exceptionalism, would say that it's, it's not really best thought of as a religion. And therefore, it's, it is on much better terms with science than any other religion. And many would even go further and say that it is a science in itself, or at least it's potentially part of a larger project of developing a mature science of the mind. And I've certainly said a few things along those lines, or which can be construed to be taking those positions. So you're, you're critical of me insofar as you think I, I've advocated those positions. And you're also critical of, of the new atheism, which is a, a movement that I've often been associated with, in that you think it and we and I don't have a proper understanding of religion and therefore can't really draw the the boundary between religion and science at the right place. And so I think this is one area of, of potential disagreement and an interesting push and pull between us it will be at the just how we think about the boundary between science and religion or, or science and the rest of, of what we do to, to make sense about about anything. And then there's this other area that you have called neurocentrism which is the, you know, loosely the, this idea that the brain is the proper domain of studying any of the, the empirical claims of Buddhism or claims about meditation generally, claims about there not being a self or the self being an illusion or, or a construct or claims about enlightenment or you know, just what the proper goal is of spiritual life. You want to argue that there's a, a different framework in which to study these things and, and study the human mind generally, and that's that goes by the name of embodied cognition. So there's the, the kind of boundary between science and everything else problem. There's the, what's the locus of a, what's the proper frame in which to study our personhood with respect to any of anything that interests us. And this is kind of the embodied cognition versus neurocentrism problem. And I think actually one way to kick this off is there's a passage in your book on page 188 going on to 189 that I thought I would read, because this is what you think you have demonstrated in your book, and this is kind of how you summarize your, your argument here. Now in the 21st century, Buddhist modernist discourse is at its height, but this discourse is untenable, as we've seen. Its core tenets, that Buddhism is a, quote, mind science, that there is no self, that mindfulness is an inward awareness of one's own private mental theater, 
that neuroscience establishes the value of mindfulness practice, that enlightenment is a non-conceptual experience outside language, culture, and tradition, and that enlightenment is or can be correlated with a brain state, and so this is my word, all of these things, are philosophically and scientifically indefensible. So there's, yeah, there are other claims in there that I think we'll want to touch, just you know, what role concepts play in, in determining the reality of anything. So you know, what, what does it mean to say that meditation or mindfulness offers a non-conceptual experience, etc.? So there's there's a there's a lot there, and I think we again I think some of the differences between us are semantic, but I guess let's start on this topic of Buddhist modernism and Buddhist exceptionalism because I I, I will want to argue for the exceptionalism piece at least to a first approximation. What, what what's what's your problem with you know what what is Buddhist modernism and Buddhist exceptionalism and and what's your problem with them? Okay. So Buddhist modernism, I should say it's not my term. It's a term that historians use to describe a form of Buddhism that arose in Asia in the context of Western colonial rule and then was exported to the West and then was imported back into Asia and is now, you could say, a, a modern transnational form of, of Buddhism. And what Buddhist modernism emphasizes is meditation in the sense of individual direct experience of, you might say, in very general terms, attending to one's own experience of the mind. Obviously, I'm simplifying because there are, you know, many different variants and traditions, whether we're talking about, you know, Zen or Vipassana, but to put that in, you know, in very, in very general, loose terms. So Buddhism is, is fundamentally about meditation in in that sense of personal direct experience of the mind and it doesn't require belief it requires validation through experience and it is scientific or is compatible with science in the sense that it doesn't require or posit belief in a creator god it emphasizes causality and causality, specifically in a moral sense, the, the idea of, of moral causation or, or karma. And it presents Buddhism as having always been from its very inception historically that way, rather than as a modern innovation where in the Asian context, under, under Western colonial rule, the, the, you know, the British, for example, asserted the superiority of European civilization and the superiority of the Christian religion as the religion that was allied to science. And the Buddhist modernists, it's a very clever move on, they part, on their part. They kind of turned, it around, turned the argument around. And this was also coinciding with an attempt to make Buddhism more accessible, especially Buddhist meditation, more accessible to the lay community. So there was an attempt on the part of monastic Buddhist teachers and scholars to invigorate Buddhism in their country by, by, through, a, through a kind of lay reformation movement. And they turned the argument around. They said, well, actually, Buddhism is the scientific religion because, you know, we don't, we don't posit a creator God and we are not about faith. We are about direct experience. That form of Buddhism was especially appealing to Westerners at that time in the, in the 19th century and into the 20th century. Because, of course, Westerners, many Western people were, were dissatisfied with, with Christianity. 
So they were looking to find other forms of spirituality that they perceived to be compatible with modern, modern science. Buddhism wasn't the only one to do this. Hinduism also is very much part of this phenomenon. There's a kind of Hindu yeah. modernism that's, that's emerging at, the, at exactly the same time. And so this gets exported to the West, then gets exported back or imported back into Asia. Now, the exceptionalist part of Buddhist modernism is this claim that Buddhism isn't a religion or it's not essentially a religion. It's a, and then it depends who you ask, it's a mind science. That tends to be the Vipassana discourse that, you know, you see from Vipassana teachers and reformers coming out of, out of Burma. Or the, the romanticist version, which you see for, say, in D.T. Suzuki and Japanese Zen, very influenced by Western figures like by William James and the transcendentalists, you know, Thoreau and Emerson, is to say, well, Zen is the essence of all religion. And it's not about belief. It's about a kind of transcendental, non-conceptual experience. And, and so that's, in a way, the, that, is, that would escape, you know, even a, a scientific understanding. So that's more of a kind of romanticist refraction of the idea so that that's but it's also exceptionalist in that it's zen isn't really a religion or or zen is the true essence of all religion that's actually something that you know dt suzuki says in his writings so so that's the idea that's the context of buddhist modernism i i make the point again this is not really original to me in the sense that i'm drawing on work by historians but i make the point that buddhist exceptionalism is a central is a central part of of this emergent phenomenon of of Buddhist mm. modernism. I can accept all of that. I mean, I, historically, that that all seems true to me. I guess the the argument I would make for Buddhist exceptionalism. So here's the argument I'm not making. I mean, this would be to misunderstand me, and I, I have said as much in various places. But I'm definitely not arguing that most Buddhists have approached Buddhism the way I have. Right, I mean, as a mind science or as offering some of the ingredients of a, a first-person science of the mind or a first-person contribution to a larger science of the mind. I think, you know, I take your point that most Buddhists, most of the time, if you go back, you know, over the millennia, have surely practiced Buddhism as a religion, as what we mean by a religion, with, with all of the superstitious and propitiatory implications of that term. Now, all of our religions are different from the others in various ways that prove to be important when you follow the, the implications of various ideas. But, you know, Buddhism is not an exception in that sense. It's an exception in that it offers within it an empirical core with respect to things like turning consciousness upon itself in meditation and seeing what the experiential and conceptual implications of that are. It does that in a way that really can be, you know, it's not an accident that mindfulness is being studied in neuroscience labs and, you know, the Jesus prayer isn't. There is something that can be, that is ready for export to secular culture, and it can be exported to the profit of individuals doing the practice and scientists using the practice to study something about both the consequences of meditation itself and the nature of mind more generally. And I mean, I, you know, I, I sought to prove this in my first book, The End of Faith, which incidentally is what launched new atheism, even though I, I never used the term atheist in the book. That's sort of where the, the whole new atheist thing started. I did it this way. I just 
I'm making an invidious comparison between Buddhism and the, the Indian tradition generally and the Abrahamic tradition of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And I just went to my bookshelf, you know, the bookshelves that have all my Buddhist books, and I literally closed my eyes and ran my hand along the shelf and grabbed a book at random and opened it at random. And this, I got this passage, right? And, and the, the point I make explicitly after this passage appears in the book is that you, know, you could live literally for a thousand years as a Christian, a Muslim, or a Jew and never encounter any teaching remotely like this. That's the case I would want to make. I mean, it's, just, it's not that you can't find anything like this anywhere in any Christian, Muslim, or Jewish experience, because when we're here we're just talking about the nature of the mind. And it's not that there aren't certain exemplars of those traditions who have said something like this, but you know, they're actually they are outliers of a sort that they wouldn't be in Buddhism. So anyway, I just want to read the passage to you and so that you and our listeners get a sense of what I stumbled upon, because this is not a an outlier passage in in Buddhist scripture, but it's beyond being a needle in, in the haystack in the Christian or Muslim or Jewish tradition. Right, so this is from the, the um, I happened to pull out a volume that had some of the teachings of Padmasambhava, who's a, an 8th century Indian contemplative who is often credited with bringing Buddhism to Tibet. So it's an 8th century, so he's basically a, a contemporary of Muhammad, right? And this is the text. In the present moment, when your mind remains in its own condition without constructing anything, awareness at that moment is itself quite ordinary. And when you look into yourself in this way nakedly, without any discursive thoughts, since there is only this pure observing, there will be found a lucid clarity without anyone being there who is the observer. Only a naked, manifest awareness is present. This awareness is empty and immaculately pure, not being created by anything whatsoever. It is authentic and unadulterated, without any duality of clarity and emptiness. It is not permanent and yet it is not created by anything. However, it is not mere nothingness or something annihilated because it is also lucid and present. It does not exist as a single entity because it is present and clear in terms of being many. On the other hand, it is not created as a multiplicity of things because it is inseparable and of single flavor. This inherent self-awareness does not derive from anything outside itself. This is the real introduction to the actual condition of things. Now, there's a lot in there. There are terms of Buddhist jargon in there that would have to be defined and, and argued for. There are various concepts, which will be unfamiliar to some people and, and very familiar to others. But the basic point I would make about this passage is that it contains a kind of empirical injunction, right? It's this is something you can notice about your own mind if you will only pay attention in this way. And it is almost perfectly modern in its, again, once you define the terms, this is not a 8th century eruption of dogmatism and superstition and theocratic taboo, which is the sort of thing you find you know, almost everywhere in, in religions. This is a, an incredibly clear statement of my own experience as somebody who in the 21st century is trying to understand consciousness as directly as possible and, you know, in the end, as move beyond concepts with respect to an experience of it. 
it's just not an accident that somebody like me or Francisco Varela or you know, Richie Davidson, when he's getting ready to scan people's brains, would find this kind of scripture, I mean, this is scripture, relevant in a way that, you know, the contents of the Bible or the Quran or or the contents of, you know, commentators like Augustine and Aquinas and take Judaism, you know, it's just, you know, Martin Buber, it's just, it's just not as useful because all of these other religions are, again, it's not that you can't find the faith claims elsewhere in Buddhism. It's not that you can't find the gods and the goddesses and the magical stories of preposterous exploits. And it's not that, you know, rebirth and karma and all of that shouldn't beggar belief for a scientist in the 21st century. But it is true that there is this absolutely limpid experiential core, the testimony of ancient meditators, that you do not get in other religions, or you get them in the context of still being subservient to explicitly theistic dogmas. I mean, I'm not saying you can't read, you know, the Desert Fathers or, or you know, Meister Eckhart or, or Rumi and get something of like this, but... You just have, you could hold your breath until the moment in which it gets all overturned by an explicit demand that you you endorse invariably a dualistic and theistic dogma. And so anyway, that's the pitch I would make for the exceptionalism here. It doesn't contain the claim that most Buddhists see Buddhism this way. Most Buddhists have been praying to invisible entities, you know, along with their Christian and, and Jewish and Muslim neighbors. But still, I, mean, I think the exceptionalism can be argued for. There's, yeah, there's a lot there to respond to. So I, I would say a number of things. I would say, first, this is, if you will, a, a methodological point. When you take a passage from Padmasambhava and you juxtapose it with something in the Bible or the Quran, what you are in effect doing is cherry picking. Just to be clear, this is the opposite of cherry-picking, because literally this was picked at random. I would put it up against any effort to cherry-pick from the other traditions. I mean, I could literally, you know, if, if you were going to go into a library of Christian literature, I would bet money that it would take you, without some prior knowledge of where to look, it could take you a week to find a passage that was remotely equal to this if you found one. I'd put my random search against cherry-picking. No, 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 no. First of all, if you take, with your eyes closed, a book off your bookshelf and another book off your bookshelf and you compare them, this is not proper sampling. This is your library with your books, the kinds of books you are likely to have from the Buddhist tradition, the Christian tradition, and you're juxtaposing them. This, this is not, by any scholarly measure, a proper way of comparing traditions. To compare traditions requires taking the literatures of those traditions from the relevant areas, whether they're scripture, whether they're commentary, whether they're mystical traditions, and doing a proper comparison across those different genres with sensitivity to the actual historical context of the writing. So when one of us just pulls a book off of a bookshelf and looks at a passage, this is not any kind of scholarly 
analysis or investigation. So, so this, is, this is just a methodological point. If we want to compare traditions, then we really have to compare them in a proper way. And that would mean being familiar with the traditions of contemplative literature, which do indeed exist in the Christian tradition, in the Muslim tradition, Islamic tradition, in, in the Jewish tradition, and then comparing them. That, that was the only reason why I thought I could make this demonstration based on a random sampling. But it wasn't no, no, random, Sam. No, no, it but it's ra random. random with respect. My point is, I've read a lot in the Christian and Muslim and Jewish traditions, right? So, like, I, I know, I know what's in the Bible. I know what's in the Quran. I've read Augustine and Aquinas. I know what those guys were up to, right? It's not that. Again, the re only reason why I thought I could do this was my confidence in the difference that is to be found between these traditions. And that's not to disregard, again, the point I'm sure you're going, you would want to make and you've made in your book is that there's a lot of magical hocus pocus in Buddhism too. I mean, Padmasambhava, whose quote I pulled here, I mean, the Buddhists think he was born from a lotus. You know, that's every bit as crazy as the virgin birth and the resurrection and anything else you'd want to link it to in Christianity or Judaism well, or Islam. That's actually not the, the substantive point I would make. So the, so the first point I made was a methodological one about, you know, how we're supposed to actually compare religious literatures or spiritual literatures. But the substantive point I would make is that what you just read from Pablo Sambaba is absolutely saturated with religious rhetoric and language that has to do with ritual and scripts for enacting certain kinds of conceptual frameworks and the idea that it's some kind of direct phenomenological report of the nature of the mind or the way things are, I, I simply don't accept. I think that that's not an accurate reading and that it's every bit as, if you will, it's not about God, of course, but it's every bit as theological or as Buddha-logical, if, if we want to put it that way, a passage as something that you would pull from, say, Meister Eckhart or St. John of the Cross or from mystical literatures in the Kabbalah. I think that many of us just simply don't see that because we haven't really been trained to appreciate the language that's being performed and enacted, especially in, in the context in which Padmasambhava was writing. So if we, want to, if we want to sort of hive away from all kind of historical points or methodological points, I would say that that passage, I would not accept that as a passage that gives a description of how things are. I would read it as a passage that puts forward a conceptual framework to guide us to see things a certain way, to think about them a certain way, that has its ultimate motivation in the, in the sort of deep inner workings of the Buddhist tradition as a religious tradition. And by religious here, I don't mean superstitious beliefs. I mean a tradition that's fundamentally concerned with a vision of the transcendent and of liberation or salvation. These, these notions of, of liberation, awakening, enlightenment, salvation, these are, are soteriological and fundamentally religious ideas that are the driving engine of a tradition like Buddhism and that makes Buddhism analogous to, to Christianity or, or, to, or to one or another Hindu tradition and not in any way exceptional. Okay, well, so I hadn't thought to do this, but we, we could actually use this passage as a lens by which to judge some of those claims. Because So what, what you just said 
is part of your argument that you think that there's an important distinction between science and its aims and norms and your religion or spirituality and and their aims and norms and they can't be really connected in the way that that I would want right so like that you, you distinguished you know soteriology you know the, the concerns about salvation and well-being from from science or scientific epistemology just knowing what's true and I, and I think those things can be very directly linked and, and you seem to want to doubt that what you're calling religion in in, mo in many cases I would call simply empirical or you know psychological and this is both within Buddhism and within Christianity if you wanted to bring it fully into the modern era so a claim about unconditional love in the context of Christianity is you know is a religious claim and it has points of contact with a lot of Christian teaching but there's just the psychological question of whether you know unconditional love is a a possible state of the human mind there on the landscape of possible experiences to be found and experienced whether it's ethically normative or whether it's pathological in certain ways or in certain contexts right and, and so what are its consequences I mean, these are all questions about human well-being and human experience and because they're questions about well-being and experience they fall potentially into a a more complete science of the mind now i'm not i wouldn't argue that we have that science in hand yet but to say that they couldn't fall squarely into a science of the mind is to say that well we can't scientifically understand things like well-being or specific mental states like love unconditioned or not and i'd be surprised if you actually thought that but that seems to be an implication of drawing the the boundary as as neatly as you sometimes want to draw it yeah i don't see that as an implication of of what i'm saying what what i'm saying is that religion as i'm using the word and i'm using this word in, in a way that comes out of a certain tradition of scholarship on religion that you know you could maybe date back to durkheim the the idea is that religion is is fundamentally concerned with transcendence with with meaning that is that that exceeds or is beyond what we find through a sort of causal explanatory way of looking at the world that has its you know epitome in science so within buddhism the idea of transcendence takes the form of awakening bodhi enlightenment understood as the cessation of suffering through through the attainment of nirvana in christianity it has to do with the nature of of humanity and suffering in relationship to divinity and with love and in these contexts awakening and love are functioning as you could say as kind of asymptotic regulative ideals in other words you even even if no human being is really is really capable of unconditioned love nevertheless you you orient your life to that it's it's your sort of pole star you orient your sensibility to it even if there's there's a recognition of of in some sense the the impossibility of that similarly in the case of buddhism although it is understood that that awakening is is in principle attainable still the 
idea that, you know, in this life, you are going to be awakened. That's, you know, most Buddhists generally regard that as, as similarly, this kind of like impossibility and that awakening is this kind of asymptotic ideal embodied in, in the person of the Buddha. So that's, that's really what I see as, as the kind of core phenomenon of, of religion. And so, yeah, I mean, you can come along as a scientist and say, okay, here's, you know, here's a Buddhist community, here's a Christian community, you know, they practice these different virtues, they engage in these different kinds of contemplative practices. Let's, you know, try to study what the effects of those are. I mean, I, of course, think that can be done. I mean, I think it needs to be done maybe in somewhat more sophisticated ways than just using neuroscience. I think you need to do some other things like, you know, anthropology, especially to look at, you know, social behaviors and forms of life. But sure, you can do that. But that's to take a kind of outside approach to the phenomenon of religion. The inside way of thinking about it is that, yeah, you can do all those, you know, those modes of study and, and that might actually, in, you know, inform the insider of some things that are interesting. But the insider is fundamentally committed to a certain soteriological ethical project that is regulated by this ideal that they that they don't take to be something that is verifiable or falsifiable by by the scientific enterprise. So how would you draw the boundary between science and soteriology and or, or just the rest of what we do with our minds mm-hmm. to make sense of what's going on here because you I mean in your book you you reference things that as though they're intrinsic to this differentiation which I don't think are I mean things like controlled experiment or measurement or I don't think you mention it but many people would put mathematical modeling in here or public versus private claims. The list I just rattled off, these are things that I think most people would say, okay, this is, you know, on one side of this line is science. On the other side, when you don't have any of these things, it's non-science. And I don't think it's actually the right place to draw the line. I'm wondering where you draw it. Okay. So, I mean, partly this will depend on how we want to use the word science. And I, and and there are different ways that word can be used. I don't, I don't want to be a stickler about that. But but if we're using the word science in the sense of modern experimental science, so science that, you know, arises with figures like Galileo and Newton and Descartes and then, you know, is carried forward into where, where we are today, then I see it as fundamentally concerned with developing causal explanatory models of, of phenomena using, you know, the tools of of controlled experiment and, and and mathematics, as you say, developing causal explanatory models to understand the workings of things and to and to intervene and and alter them for our own purposes and our and our own ends. And and there there is a kind of if we wanted to use the word soteriology, there is a there is a there is a, a soteriological project there that has to do with the European Enlightenment of of transforming the material world in a way that is understood to make it to make it better for 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 human beings and their and their material aims now i do not see contemplative practice and the discourses around contemplative practice whether they be practice manuals or scriptures or philosophical discussions as being scientific in that sense of the term if you wanted to use the word science in a sort of larger sense to mean the, the, the human 
project of, of gaining knowledge, you know, maybe like the way that Wissenschaft is used sometimes in German. Well, you know, we could use the word science in that larger sense. And, and then a lot of what we see in certain parts of, of contemplative religious traditions might qualify it for, for that. But I'm really, when I'm using the word science in the book, I'm especially thinking of it in the, in the, in the sense of modern experimental science, because that's the idea of science that has authority in our culture and that people usually are invoking when they say Buddhism is a, is a science or meditation is an inner science, because they think that what you're doing is observing in a scientific sense, like a naturalist might, you know, go out and observe the flora and fauna. You're observing what's happening in your mind as it arises and subsides from moment to moment. And then you're describing it in words in a way that's that's a kind of accurate readout or printout of that inner experience. And I do not think that meditation is like that. I think that's a distortion of meditation because I think meditation is very much a, a constructive project of shaping them, actively shaping the mind according to certain kinds of norms and ideals. And so the analogy of, of, of a kind of inner telescope or inner microscope, I think, completely misses that. And this, just to make this, you know, connect to something earlier in our conversation, this was actually brought home to me in a very pointed way at the Vipassana retreat that I did at IMS that was, that was the one that was designed especially for, for scientists and, and clinicians. It was, it was led by Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg. And I hadn't done actually the Mahasi Sayada like seven day Vipassana format before my experience in meditation had had been well originally I was introduced to meditation actually through through Hinduism and through through kind of modern yoga practice through through my dad and and then I was introduced to Zen, certain kinds of contemplative Christian practice I was also I was also familiar with. And I hadn't done that Vipassana, that Vipassana style of practice before. I mean, I had read Joseph Goldstein's books and had, had read a lot about Vipassana, but I hadn't, you know, actually sat, you know, for whatever it is, 10 hours a day of sitting and walking meditation according to that, according to that format. So I was actually really interested to do the retreat. And when I did the retreat, it, it hit me at a certain point that the rhetoric was drop concepts, drop language, simply be aware, be present. At the same time, we were being given a whole conceptual system and vocabulary coming out of what you might call a kind of like watered-down baby version of, of Theravada Abhidhamma to, to make sense of the various kinds of experiences that we would be having or to guide our attention to look at certain things in certain ways. And it was sort of midway through the, through the experience that I realized, oh, actually what we're doing here is we're, we're, we're all, you know, a hundred of us in a room sitting in silence, except for the words of the teacher. Th those words are resonating much more strongly internally because everybody's silent, so they're the only words we hear. We have this kind of sense of purpose as a community. We're going to be intrepid mind explorers. We're, we're scientists and philosophers, and we're, we're using Vipassana, which is sort of introspection that works, unlike, you know, Wundt. The, the, the German introspectionists or the, or the early you know, 19th, 20th century introspectionist psychologists. So there was this whole contextual, conceptual framing that was constructing our experience, which isn't to say that we weren't having meaningful experiences along the way, 
But the whole framework in which we were understanding them was, was through a conceptual system that was, that was as much constructing our experiences as they were guiding and disclosing, guiding us to have our experiences be disclosed in a certain way. And so that's very much how I think about meditation. I think that meditation is not this kind of naked inner observation as if you're just turning a telescope inward on how the mind truly works. I think of it as as a collective ritualistic. There was a lot of ritual, even though, you know, nobody recognized it at ritual as ritual at the retreat. This kind of modern constructive interpretative exercise driven by certain ethical and, and soteriological norms. Now, the thing that I, I, I find striking about this is that nobody likes to hear you say that, <laughs> or very few people do. So I actually raised this as a point with Joseph Goldstein mm-hmm. at the end of the retreat, and it, it didn't really register with him, and, and he, he, didn't, he didn't seem to you know, be very moved by it. He was, he was I think, a little bit taken aback and... and said, oh, well, it would be interesting to have a retreat in which we didn't use any conceptual language. And, and my thought in response to that was, well, that kind of misses the point because it would be impossible to do a retreat like that. You always have a conceptual system. And it becomes extremely powerful and steeped into the mind in the context of, you know, seven days of, of, of silence in a, in, a, in a sort of group solidarity setting. So people, when you say these kinds of things, people don't want to hear them because they think meditation is an inner science and I'm being spiritual but not religious and I'm being scientific and and this is the way to be spiritual in our in our day and age so anything that unsettles that you know people aren't happy to hear that well I mean in their defense they could be unhappy to hear it because it ignores certain things which they think uh, they have good reason to believe are true right I mean which is my experience being on on the receiving end of this it's not that you know, half of what you just said is true, but the the other half is going unacknowledged, right? So it, it is in fact true that to speak about anything, you have to use concepts. Everything at the at the level of our discourse about it seems conceptual, even when you're talking about what may in fact be beyond concepts. You know, it's not a paradox to say we can talk about these things. I mean, to say that something is non-conceptual. I think this is even something you might say in your book, it's not the same thing as saying that it's non-conceptualizable, right? I mean, we can talk about what may be prior to concepts or beyond concepts, uh, and we must use concepts to do that. So that's true, and that's kind of confounding for some people in this conversation. There's also the fact that, yes, it's also true that concepts can cause you to alter your experience but first of all, the very act of observing your experience is not nothing, right? You're you're altering your experience by becoming mindful of it, whether you know conceptually or non-conceptually. You are changing things the moment you begin doing anything differently, and becoming mindful of thoughts or becoming mindful of emotions is doing something. You can't not meddle with experience, even when you're uh, meddling less than you ever have by merely witnessing everything, right? That's a different mode of, of relating to yourself in the world. And that has consequences. And I share your, your impatience with people who, who marvel at the fact that this seems to change the brain as though that meant anything, because basically everything we do changes the brain, right? So the changing the brain isn't, isn't a signature of significance for meditation or anything else. But the fact that 
paying attention in certain ways and being led to do that on the basis of having internalized certain concepts can change your psychology or change your experience or change things to conform to those concepts or to apparently conform to those concepts. I mean, there's, there's a possibility of self-deception here, which is, you know, non-negligible, you know, or wish fulfillment or various cognitive biases come into play. All of that, I, I grant you all of that, but that doesn't describe the whole project or the whole course of experience that is available there. And also the, all of these claims that you uh, are making around the connection to ritual and the, and the wider connection to a community and its beliefs, you know, that there's kind of a, a, a um, communal construction or social construction of many of these seemingly private truths uh, that are there to be realized. They don't have any reality apart from what's happening in, in a larger social context. That's also disconfirmable. I'm trying to think, I mean, there's so much in play here that for us to talk about, I'm trying to figure out how to focus the conversation. I, the thing I, I don't want us to fail to talk about the claim that the self is an illusion or a construct here, because that, it's so important and and uh, we, we may disagree about it. Maybe that can focus, focus all of these concerns, right? So, you know, I and many other people have made the claim that the self, as most people think they experience it, is an illusion. And then there are other aspects, other ways in which we use this term self, which are not, don't reference illusions. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I make it clear to say that I'm not saying that people are illusions or that every use of the word self is illegitimate. There's a specific type of self that is illusory. And I think you, while you think we disagree about this, I think you and I actually do agree about this. I mean, there's a, there's a quote from your book I, I fully agree with, which different, makes this differentiation, which is, you know, if you think the self is a an unchangeable subject in the center of experience, you know, kind of a CEO self, that doesn't exist. That's an illusion. But there are many other ways to understand the notion of self, which is more properly thought of as a construct rather than an illusion, or it's a process. It's not a noun, it's a verb. And these are all things I've said in various contexts. And so I think we agree on the, about this, but, you know, I'm happy to, we should find any disagreement there. But this is the kind of thing you know, whatever's true in that space, let's say that it's true that most people feel that they have an internal self that's not merely identical to their body, it's not merely their answer to the problem of personal identity through time, it's not a global statement of, about their psychological continuity with their, you know, the self of 10 years ago and the self who will be here in 10 years. It, no, it's, it's actually this felt sense that there's a subject in the head that is aiming attention at the, at the breath when they're meditating, but at the world when they're out there walking around. And they're kind of, you know, riding around in their bodies from that point of view, you know, as though the body were itself a kind of vehicle, right? That self, you know, call that the CEO self. There's a claim that that is an experience that people have quite commonly, which they can cease to have by paying attention more and more closely to that experience and paying attention in a way that is as free of conceptual meddling as possible. 
right? Now, is it completely free? We, we might debate that. Certainly in the beginning, it's not. But the experiment that, that is being offered to people is if you pay attention to this feeling of being a self, this thing you're calling I, which again, is not your body, but it's just the sense of being a subject in the head for the most part. If you pay close attention to that, and every time you get distracted by thought, you come back to paying attention to that, you may have this experience of that feeling dropping away. And again, so this is a this betrays a kind of soteriological bias, right? The whole purpose of this is not to make predictions about the future, certainly not based on any kind of model of the world, but this is a kind of this is a hypothesis and it is making a prediction about the future of your experience if you could only use your attention in the requisite way. Again, this comes to you from a community of language users who are throwing concepts all around, but this is something you can do alone in a cave for years without seeing another living soul, right? So this is not, this is, you could do this in, a, in an epistemic solitude. So it's not obviously a social thing. In fact, it's, you know, I would argue it's deconstructing something that got put there based on your social encounters earlier in life. The spurious notion of a self is an internalized thing, I think very likely, that we all get based in conversation with other human beings and being taken as objects for them and having that whole experience of relationship ramified in this way. Again, this is probably more than we can talk about, but so that I guess the point I'd like you to focus on here is this claim, which again is an empirical claim, and there's a kind of behavioral recipe for authenticating this claim. And this is a claim that people have been claiming to authenticate for thousands of years in various ways. And again, this can be understood, you know, whether it's true or false, it can be understood by all of the tools we're currently using to understand the mind in general, right? And, and so, you know, we can scan people's brains while they do this and have this epiphany or not and make those comparisons. And, you know, it has ethical components. I mean, there are many, many places from which to judge the significance of this. But, you know, I would argue it, it would be part of a completed science of the mind, a scientific description of ourselves. And there's certainly nothing unscientific about it. I mean, it's not based on dogma. You don't need faith in anything other than, I mean, it's a very different kind of faith you need in order to investigate this. It's the faith of, the faith you need to profitably use a cookbook, right? If you want to learn how to cook a casserole, well, if you if you want to call the, the, the mental attitude you need to follow the recipe faith, well then, you know, it's, it's not everyone's use of the term faith there, but it's the faith of, I'm not uniquely cursed uh, in not being able to cook a casserole. And if I follow these steps, I just may be able to do it the way uncountable numbers of human beings have done it before me. And so it is with this, right? This is worth looking into. That's that's the faith you would use in that case. Yeah, so I think, you know, there's aspects of that that I would agree with and then aspects I might want to phrase differently or or emphases I might want to put in other places. I would I would say that First of all, the idea that there is an experience of an inner I that is a that is both a, a subject of awareness and a kind of CEO executive agent who somehow resides behind my eyes in my head. 
I do acknowledge or recognize that 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 is an experience that people have. I'm not sure actually how widespread that is, and I'm not sure described that way how culturally specific it is. So that would actually be something one would need to investigate. I'm also not at all convinced that that is the default habitual mode of self. That strikes me as a kind of experience of self that arises in moments of reflection and reflective detachment and not the mode of experience of self that would characterize many of the things that we do in daily life when we're kind of absorbed and geared into our environment and our tasks that we've learned to be proficient at or when we're you know performing a kind of skilled activity like a dance or or engaging in martial arts practice or skiing or or something like that or even you know typing in an absorbed way when one's writing at the computer it seems to me that there are many different modes of self-experience and the one that you just described that i just redescribed is 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 really only one of them and and i'm i'm not actually convinced that it's widespread in those terms and that it is the the default mode of self so that would that would just be one point now with regard to the idea that one can engage in practices where one has a kind of recipe or script or procedure even if it's a kind of anti recipe you know so in zen you know you're you're you, you really are supposed to drop all those ideas and you're supposed to just sit and you know you might ask well how do i just sit well just sit and the whole idea that you would follow something like you know a mahasi sayada noting or that you would have any kind of end or goal or set of ideas about procedure and outcome you know zen zen would try to continually thwart that and and undermine that so there it's just to say that there are sort of different ways of engaging in the kind of practice you're describing but in any case i i don't doubt that doing that alters one's experience and i don't doubt that it can alter one's experience in ways that lead one to have a quieter mind and a mind that is more alert and sensitive and that that experience can be felt as profoundly beneficial and transformative in some contexts it can be associated with you know various kinds of positive affect states or or bliss states i don't i don't doubt any of that however the idea that you are in doing that disclosing how things fundamentally are that's a claim i would treat with a fair amount of caution because there's a, there's a sense in which that's true you're altering experience to bring about another experience and that is indeed something that happens and so is in a sense how things are but the idea that you are laying bare a deeper more fundamental reality so that even to put that in a phenomenological way you're laying bare a deeper more fundamental nature of consciousness that is that's a kind of metaphysical claim even even in a phenomenological idiom and there i think you can't really make a claim like that without immediately bringing to bear some kind of conceptual system within which it it has meaning and is and is supposed to be intelligible and then it becomes subject to interpretation argument alternative ways of construing the phenomena 
And if we look, you know, at even the history of, of, of Buddhism, we, we, we indeed see that. We see many, many doctrinal, philosophical, scriptural disputes about what exactly the point of a practice like that is and what exactly a practice like that affects or, or, or brings about. So those, those, I don't think, are necessarily in contradiction to what you said, but, but, but those are the things that I would want to emphasize and, and you know, bring to the fore of our attention. Hmm. Yeah, well, I don't think, well, the last piece might be, but um, most of it's not. It's just that it's, it is a different emphasis. So on your first point, that this is not the self we have most of the time, I would agree with that, but the way I would describe that is this self really is an illusion, right? This self isn't there, right? It's not like you have this kind of CEO self and then you destroy it through meditation. No, you recognize that it wasn't there in the first place. And the reason why this doesn't characterize much of our experience as we go through life getting absorbed in our work or watching television or driving a car or whatever it is uh, that seems to depart from this clear sense, this sort of reflective sense, I think as you put it, of being the subject in the head. The reason why that seems to vanish much of the time is one that's not actually there, and our attention gets diverted to other things, and we don't, the difference between that experience and the experience of, of meditation is that we don't have the, the metacognitive skill in those moments to recognize that this feeling of self has dropped away. So I would agree with you that it's being interrupted. This thing I'm calling the, the illusory self, it is being interrupted all the time by our fixating on experience in various ways. By we, we, I mean, we literally have the phrase that captures this, we need to get lost in one's work, right? I mean, to, what is getting lost? Well, it's this very thing, that, you know, among other things perhaps, or flow experiences which people have, you know, seem to be characterized by this sense that you're no longer on the edge of the experience looking in or, you know, looking over one's own, own shoulder abstracted away from experience and just kind of appropriating experience from a position outside experience. No, there's this, there's this unity of experiencer and experiencer, or, you know, or dancer and, and the dance, right? And those are incredibly pleasurable moments, and they, they seem to happen haphazardly to most people. And again, fl the difference between flow and meditative insight, or, or you know, real mindfulness, in this case, is that flow t tends to lack the metacognition of just recognizing that this is the way consciousness is prior to dualistic fixation, to use a you know jargon from one tradition of Buddhism. So yes, I mean that's how I would account for that difference. But the the person you can talk to when 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 you're talking about the project of paying explicit attention to experience is the person certainly most of the time who feels like the thinker of their thoughts the experiencer of their experience, people tend not to feel merely identical to experience, you know, as a matter of their own, you know, phenomenology. They feel like there's a, there's experience, but it's being appropriated from some point of view that is at the center of it or on the periphery of it. And if you were going to give it an anatomical location, it's 
very likely in the head, although there is there's certainly testimony that people in other cultures in the East generally, uh, and many people who've spent a lot of time practicing under the framework of a different kind of sacred anatomy, you know, in, in kind of the Hindu yogic line, may have may think that the self sense is, is more in the, in the heart, you know, or in the chest than in the head. And that's an experience that people can have. But still, there's this subject-object dualism that is there to be inspected. And the, the argument is, if you inspect it carefully enough, it drops away and drops away in a way that's different than it's dropping away in all these other moments when you're not noticing really what you're about because you're you're watching television or lost in your work or reacting to something out in the world. I mean, this is a this is not all of Buddhism, certainly, but it is it's one of these minimal exports that is it's so clearly described within certain parts of Buddhism that it's, it's just not an accident that people like me and many of the people who are studying meditation in the lab now have seized upon this as, you know, of, you know, real interest and utility, right? And there are many things in spiritual contemplative traditions that have not been seized upon with quite the same interest because they're obviously ideas that, you know, belong in the Iron Age, right? And can't really be ported in the same way to a secular scientific project of understanding the mind. Yeah, so I think focusing in on this idea of, of a subject-object dichotomy or structure in experience is, is, a, is a useful way or, or helpful version for thinking about this issue of self, because the word self is used in, in so many different ways in you know, so many different contexts. The, the idea that, that there are certain practices, contemplative practices, in which the subject-object structure drops away, I, I don't doubt that. I think that there are other experiences in which the subject-object structure drops away, other, other kinds of practices in which the subject-object structure drops away, very, they tend to be very skilled performances, although not always actually just skilled performances, but, but people who are accomplished in, you know, playing the violin or in, or in dancing or, or in martial arts or in, you know, one or another kind of athletic activity, I think often have that experience of the subject-object structure dropping away. Now, the idea that in meditation, what's different is that there's a certain kind of metacognitive functioning or capacity that's present that isn't in that isn't present in these other cases that may or may not be true i would treat that as you know a claim that needs to be investigated by by psychology and you'd you'd have to look at you know different levels of accomplishment in these in these different types of of disciplines and then for that matter some you know modes of artistic practice are heavily influenced and conditioned by by contemplative frameworks so there's going to be you know intermixing intermixing between them the idea that when the subject-object structure drops away, that you're revealing awareness as it is in itself. Now, that seems to me to be a problematic claim just philosophically, because when, when something drops away and something else is left, well, what's left is not dependent on what dropped away, obviously. 
whether it's awareness in itself. There's, there's different ways to construe that. One might be, okay, so you can bring about, you can induce a more minimal form of awareness that takes offline, as it were, the, the aspects of the cognitive functioning that have to do with the subject-object structure. That's one way of putting it. I think I, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that that, that that can happen. The idea that you're revealing awareness in itself in a way that's described, say, in the Buddhist tradition is, is a more complicated matter because there, whenever awareness in itself is described, it's, it's saturated with a kind of symbolic, religious, soteriological imagery, you know, radiant, empty, pure, pristine, naked. And those terms and that symbolism and that conceptual system involves an awful lot more than just the idea that you're somehow taking cognitive functioning offline and defaulting to a more minimal, call it what you will, animal, mammalian form of, of, of sentience. So it's very important to me that we, that we keep track conceptually and descriptively of the kind of claims that we're making and the kind of language that's being used and the, and the kind of reports that are being made and the, and the context in which, in which they're produced. So what I object to then would be a kind of simplistic collapse of, for example, the kind of language that we have in the case of Padmasambhava and the passage you read at the very beginning with a, I don't know, cognitive science description that says, you know, you're taking cognitive functioning offline and defaulting to to a kind of uh, minimal, you know, minimal awareness or, or, or minimal phenomenal experience is the term that, you know, those of us who work in this area in philosophy and cognitive science use. So by those of us, I mean Thomas Metzinger and Jenny Vint and, and I have, have, you know, been part of a larger discussion amongst other colleagues of this idea of a kind of minimal phenomenal experience. Is there sort of a minimally sufficient set of criteria that would define awareness in a way that wouldn't involve this elaborated subject-object structure or, or, or sense of self? And might it manifest in different kinds of states like dreamless sleep or lucid dreaming or, or meditative states or, or flow states possibly even, though that probably is less likely because there's a lot of sensory motor sophistication to those, to those states in terms of what you're doing interacting with the world. You know, that I think is a very interesting question from a, from a cognitive scientific perspective. But I, I want to caution against the idea that when we go read Padmasambhava or when we go read, you know, Advaita Vedanta or when we go read, you know, Zen or Chan Buddhism, that what we're getting are scientific phenomenological descriptions of that. I, th I think that that's just not sensitive to the nature of those texts. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, it, it really depends on who's reading the text. And the truth is you can accomplish an idiosyncratic reading of anything and put your own wisdom into the text. I mean, this was, this was another thing that I did in that first book, The End of Faith, whereas I, I, I randomly opened another book. It was a uh, cookbook on, I think it was Hawaiian cooking, and randomly picked out a recipe there for, um, if memory serves, uh, wok-seared shrimp with some kind of relish. And showed that you could read that as a, a mystical text with a, a recipe, a full recipe for one's enlightenment, right? You can just you know, free associate on those words. And, and so that, and this was, this was 
my way of denigrating you know much of what purports to be useful mystical uh, literature right because it's you know you you can do this with word salad and you can do it with something which is really just a a recipe for shrimp and as long as you're going to go berserk with your symbolism and your numerology and everything else you know that the sky's the limit you can you know you can play the game of tarot cards with with any stimulus really but that's not to say that there isn't the author's fairly clear intent in certain texts and that you can't be on firm ground in really understanding what what a writer was trying to communicate in writing something and so when i read padmasambhava there's very little that isn't merely empirical and i mean there's very little poetry in there and there's very little again this difference between conceptualizing or speaking about a non-conceptual experience and being confused about all that and and having a conceptual experience all the while which you're claiming is non-conceptual those are two very different states and obviously the buddhists are on their guard for differentiating them i mean they so you know any meditation teacher would be quick to admit that it's possible to be deluding yourself based on concepts like emptiness and radiance and being and non-duality and all of that and to be merely thinking about those things and having an expansive experience thinking you are touching what's beyond concepts or prior to concepts and that's just a that's just a way of actually failing to meditate right and it's it's a well acknowledged way right you know every bit as much as you know skiing into a tree is a way of failing to ski successfully right i guess the one thing i would add here is that there are ways to justify the claim empirically or phenomenologically that you're on deeper ground or more fundamental ground or non-conceptual ground when you're having these insights because it, from the point of view of having this insight into non-duality you you can keep going back and forth across this terrain this dividing line between conceptual and non-conceptual and you can inspect it right it's like i mean the, the analogy i've drawn is with the um the optic blind spot right i mean once you hear about the blind spot and the, the fact that it's there to be you know interrogated you can authenticate whether it's in fact true that there's part of the visual field that is devoid of data right you know you just get a piece of paper and you make two marks on it and you close one eye and you hold the paper at the right distance and you it's a little experiment there that you have to be taught granted but once you're taught it you can authenticate this for yourself and when somebody says well how do you really know that there's a blind spot well you can all you can really do there is recommend that they perform the same experiment and it just so happens that it also can be made sense of in a in a third person way by understanding the anatomy of the retina so it makes sense that it's there to be experienced and many of us have drawn the same connection to neuroscience or cognitive science that you know, it makes sense that this ceo self can drop away because yeah it doesn't make sense that there would be such a unchanging center of of narrative gravity in the head or in any other process that's happening in the head so i guess i would say to you that there's the phenomenological tools here are not as um powerless to differentiate these things as you seem to be suggesting because there's here's here's another example right like because this experience happens again now this is the experience of non-duality 
because it happens based on paying more attention to the ground of duality rather than less. And it's there whenever you look, right? And at a certain point, I mean, once you, once you really have recognized this thing, it's impossible to overlook it on purpose. You can't not see it if you remember to look for it. It becomes stable in a way that it's, it's unbanishable, right? Yes, you can get lost in thought again. Yes, you can be distracted. But if someone says, pay attention, you know, or if you say that to yourself, the thing that is there to be attended to is this quality of consciousness. And it's unlike flow in that it's there whatever the objects of consciousness happen to be. So it doesn't matter if you're moving your body. It doesn't matter if you're happy or sad. It doesn't matter if you're sleepy or wide awake. If you become mindful at that moment, this subject-object perception drops away. And it can't be reconstructed on demand, right? It's like it, it can only reconstruct itself when you're no longer mindful, which is to say distracted. And you can become more sensitive to the mechanics of its reconstruction. I mean, it's, it's, it becomes reconstructed when you once again fall into this dreamlike identification with thought. So to say, to make the claim that this thing is prior to thought, that this thing is the condition in which thoughts appear, and that this condition of consciousness doesn't feel like a self, right? And, and the feeling of self is itself an adventitious appearance in this condition, right? These are all claims that can be endlessly inspected. And again, to say, well, these are just concepts that you're foisting upon your mind and changing your mind in the process, that doesn't quite get at the experience in the same way that it wouldn't get at the experience. Like, here's another classic example that will be known to you, which is you know, the example of you know thinking you see a snake but looking more closely and seeing that it's only a, a coiled length of rope, right? This is the classic Indian, you know, exists, exists in Buddhism and in Hinduism and everywhere in, in the Indian tradition, right? So you, you, you see a snake in the corner, you're startled, you're adrenalized, you look more closely and you see that it's a rope and, you know, with, with all the attendant relief there. And it makes no sense, really, for someone to say, well, it's just as much a snake as it is a rope, because you had a concept of a snake, and now you got a concept of a rope, and the claim that it's a snake and the claim that it's a rope, those are on all fours together. You're just playing a language game. You're just deceiving yourself. No, there is an asymmetry here that should be acknowledged and, and would be acknowledged by anyone who's had this experience, and certainly by anyone who can have this experience on demand, which is to say every moment they look in the corner and they see a rope, right? The snake always collapses into being a rope. The rope never truly collapses into being a snake unless you're not paying attention and you're, you're briefly confused, and then upon which reinspecting this experience resolves the, the ropeness of it once again. This asymmetry is important, you know, phenomenologically, and this, again, this asymmetry is at the boundary of thought and its absence, or thought, the identification with thought and its absence. The sense of, sub, of there being a subject in the, mid, in the middle of consciousness and its absence. And again, this is terrain that can be inspected a thousand times a day. I mean, it's literally like there's a, ro a rope 
you know, that you've, you've always got in hand that you can keep looking at to assure yourself it's not a snake. And so that, I mean, those are a couple more pieces I would just put in play for you. Yeah, I don't, I don't really disagree with, with any of that. I don't, again, I might put it a little differently, place emphases in, in other places perhaps. I don't, I don't mean to be implying or at all arguing that everything is conceptual in the sense that concepts literally fabricate everything else that there is in experience. That's, that's not my, that's not my, my view. My, my view is that there's a very complex interrelationship between concepts and experience, that experience has non-conceptual aspects or dimensions or, or elements, and it has conceptual ones, and that when we engage in certain kinds of practices, yes, it's possible to tap into something that, or I, or I have reason to believe that, that, that and, and I you know, have reason to believe both sort of philosophically and experientially, that it's possible to tap into something that is not conceptual and is not dependent on concepts for its working. However, the ability to tap into that and then the subsequent articulation of it immediately involves one in conceptuality. Because the ability to tap into it, yet yeah, I mean, yes, it's a skill. You can you can sort of drop thought and tap into it, but the whole configuring of yourself as a system that enables you to do that is through the vehicle of of conceptuality. And the minute you, as it were, emerge from that and articulate it, and then even try to go back and forth across the distinction in a way that notes the distinction, to note the distinction between conceptuality and non-conceptuality is already to use a categorical distinction that is itself a form of conceptuality. So the terrain here is, is extremely complicated and, and delicate, but I do not mean to, to suggest that, that experience doesn't have non-conceptual dimensions. I, I mean, I, I think that it does. I think, I mean, it might be worth actually saying what I what I mean when I use the word concept, because you know people use use this word in word in different ways. So, so when I use the word concept, and and here I'm I'm really using it out of a, a tradition of research on concepts in cognitive science. What I mean is minimally the 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 sorting of something or the placing of it into a category. This this happens in perception without overt linguistic thought. So, you know, if I if I see something as an apple or as red, that's already conceptuality mm. in the sense of categorization. And this is very much in keeping with, with, with the Buddhist way of thinking about what concepts are and how they work in the, in the long tradition of Buddhist philosophy and, and, and epistemology, which is, you know, I, I've, I've done some recent writing on, on concepts in the Buddhist tradition and how it relates to concepts in, in cognitive science, theorizing about concepts, that is. And so this, this minimal sense of conceptuality is bringing some kind of categorical recognitional capacity and scheme into your experience, deploying it experientially. So if you were to do that in a way where you're noting, let's say you're metacognitively noting 
you know, a resting in non-conceptuality or an abiding in non-conceptuality versus a conceptual articulation, that's already to make a conceptual distinction. That's already categorical. So again, I don't I don't disagree with the claim that there is non-conceptual richness in in experience. I, I think it's rather a matter of being precise in how we think about the relationship between conceptuality and non-conceptuality. So that would be that would be maybe one difference of of emphasis or one thing that I would I would want to, you know, bring out to the fore. The other thing I would say is that actually I, I had a second thought that I just that I just lost hold of as it were. So let, let, let's just stay with that one. Maybe it'll maybe it'll uh, maybe it'll come back to me as we talk. Well, maybe we can shift to this other issue that you point out, which is what you consider to be the problem of neurocentrism and you know, kind of neuro-Buddhism, which is this notion that studying the brain of meditators, you know, study, looking for the neural correlates of mindfulness or compassion or anything else that is a target state of meditation is the best way or even an intelligible way to understand the mind or understand meditation or to make truth claims with respect to any of these topics. You favor a view that goes by a few different names, but you know, embodied cognition is one of them. What, what is embodied cognition and what issue do you take with you know, this emphasis on, on scanning the brains of people in various states of affect or cognition, hoping to understand something about the mind? First of all, embodied cognitive science is a, is a framework within cognitive science that has developed over the past, say, 30 or 40 years. And it emphasizes the need to understand cognitive processes or, or the mind as occurring in the context of the whole organism or person or, or animal or interactive agent engaged with the environment so that the the cognitive system is identified not with the brain as a subsystem but with the interacting agent or or, or 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 system or animal that's to put embodied cognition in very general terms to put put it a little bit more specifically it's the idea that the body and specifically its sensory motor perceptual motor capacities is a proper part of the cognitive system itself and so the cognitive system includes more than more than just the brain so that that's just a very kind of very general statement of of the of the orientation hmm. of embodied cognition now with regard to scanning I, I mean I have I have no objection to neuroscientific research that uses fMRI I think the issue about about fMRI is a it's a methodological issue you 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 use brain imaging when you have a question that's well addressed by brain imaging methods and and some of the research in contemplative cognitive science or or some of the some of the research on meditation meets that standard most of it doesn't in my opinion and that that's really a, a kind of I mean that's not a very interesting philosophical issue it's just it's just a you know if you do a if you do a sort of what lights up study you put someone in a scanner and you just look for neural correlates of something that in and of itself is not terribly interesting because of course they're going to be neural correlates I mean all you don't even need to be a materialist you could be 
you could be a dualist and still think there need to be neural correlates. So, that, I mean, that's just not a, a particularly interesting finding. It has to be informed by a hypothesis and by, a th- you know, a theory and model with behavioral evidence that makes meaningful what you're looking for neurally and, and, and what you un- uncover neurally. Now, so that, that's really a kind of methodological matter. I mean, we, we, we can talk more about that, but, but, but in, the, in the more general philosophical sense, I would say that studying, I'll give you some analogies that I, that I like to use. So, so the analogy that, you know, the mind is in the brain is a bit like saying that flight is in the wings of a bird. A bird needs wings to fly. It needs wings to generate lift. But flight is something the bird does in its environment as a whole animal. Similarly, cognition, you need a brain for cognition. But cognition is something that the whole person does in relationship to the environment. And the brain is a, is, is a crucial subsystem, but it's a kind of category mistake to, to think that the cognition is in the brain in the same way that it's a category mistake to think that flight is in the wings of the bird. I would also say that if you, if you are thinking that the brain correlates are, are really what's going to illuminate or validate contemplative experience of one or, one or another form, that to me, especially say with a so-called expert meditator, that to me is, and I use this analogy in the book, is like thinking that if you were to scan Yo-Yo Ma's brain while he's performing box cello, box cello suite number one, of, of course you're going to see neural patterns in his brain that are different from someone who doesn't know how to play the cello or who's not an accomplished performer. And there's a sense in which that's meaningful. His brain is different. His, you know, neural patterns are different. But there's another sense in which that's not very interesting at all because it doesn't tell you anything particularly about skill and performance. It doesn't tell you anything about music. It certainly doesn't tell you anything interesting about Bach. To understand Bach, you need to know about you know, musical conventions and history and iconography and religion and culture and, and all sorts of things. So similarly, in the case of a meditation practice, like, for example, Mahamudra or Dzogchen, I, I pick those examples because some amount of neuroscience work has, has been done on, on adept practitioners of these, of these forms of meditation, to think that showing that there are distinct neural correlates as measured with fMRI or EEG for an expert meditator, that's not particularly illuminating about the nature of the practice, the nature of Mahamudra, the nature of Dzogchen, in the same way that it wouldn't be illuminating about Bach or music when you scan Yo-Yo Ma. So it's not to say that you can't do neuroimaging studies. Of course you can if you have a good question that needs a neuroimaging answer. But just looking at what lights up in the brain is, is, is not a good way of, of investigating things. And I think here that in the case of, of contemplative practices involving you know, different cultural traditions, be they, be they Asian or Western, it's very important for the cognitive science team to have anthropologists, as well as neuroscientists, as well as cognitive psychologists, as well as people who actually do sort of fieldwork science studies of how experiments get set up and conceptualized and performed and interpreted in, in the lab. I think that, that 
we need this kind of much more nuanced and sophisticated and multi-perspectival cognitive science to do justice to the phenomenon that we're that we're investigating. Yeah, well, I'm hearing shades of social construction and, and dependence upon a larger culture there that, you know, work for some of these phenomenon, but not as well for others. I mean, I, this is there's several analogies here that you've used, the flight of a bird or performing Bach. I, I think you use another, at some point in, the, in your book, you use the, the analogy of being a good parent. I mean, we're not going to scan right. someone's brain to see whether they're a good parent uh, or we're not, we're not going to find out what good parenthood is by scanning people's brains. But these are these analogies are different from one another, in, I would argue, in important respects, but they're, they're also different from the insight into selflessness, say, or the insight into impermanence, right? Just the fact that thoughts arise and pass away, right? Just being able to notice that or, or phenomenon generally, you know, perceptual or sensory phenomenon. The most disanalogous comparison here for me is the, is the good parent one. I mean, obviously... You can't say someone is a good parent merely by reference to their brain because, I mean, parenthood itself is a category of relationship that only exists given certain facts out in the world. I mean, you need to have kids if you're going to be a parent, and you can't, you're not going to find the kid in your brain. And yet there are aspects to any of these, these things, you know, parenthood included, or the goodness of a good parent included, that will have neural correlates that can help us understand these things better and, and may disclose genuinely surprising you know, ways in which they're connected to other things about us that we, that we will understand more and more in the fullness of time, right? So just take the Yo-Yo Ma case, right? So Yo-Yo Ma is a, is a great uh, cellist. Yeah, cellist, yeah. So in what does the greatness of a great cellist consist at the level of the brain, well, you, we would compare great cellists to mediocre ones, and we will find differences. And, th and those differences could be of interest. And you know, I, I would expect, based on older literature, that part of these differences will consist in having pushed back much of the motor performance into areas of the brain that are not obviously associated with, with conscious awareness, right? I mean, to take a lot of the performance offline consciously and and expertise in in almost anything motor related whether it's playing a musical instrument or you know hitting a golf ball is a story of it becoming less consciously laborious and more un, you know unconsciously fluid and there's something to understand about that at the level of the brain which doesn't require that we take in the full scope of the meaning of the performance, you know, including understanding Bach and how, and, and how he was different from Beethoven. So there's that. It's like you, you, we don't have to understand everything in order to understand something of interest. And so it is with, with many other things we might want to investigate at the level of the brain. Yes, it doesn't capture the whole phenomenon, but it captures an interesting part. But for things like the kinds of things we've been talking about, you know, meditative experience or mental states like suffering, you know, to take a specific flavor of suffering like depression, right? Now, depression, you might want to say, well, depression isn't just a state of the brain, it's a state of the whole person. It takes in the reality of relationships and, and a culture and how this person is viewed and treated by other people. And But the reality is, is that the crucial part of depression 
certain species of depression very likely is at the level of the brain, can be understood at the level of the brain, and, you know, in the fullness of time, could be cured at the level of the brain, which is to say that if we had a cure for depression and it came in pill form, in the aftermath of that invention, we will be able to say, okay, here's the chemical that has to land on these specific receptors, otherwise you will not get the benefit of the cure. And landing on those receptors, you will be cured. And there's nothing embodied about that beyond, you know, the psychopharmacology of, of what's happening in the brain. Now, I'm not saying, you know, we will ever get a cure for depression and maybe, we, maybe we're not going to be lucky like that and maybe depression will always be so complicated that, that a drug-based approach will be, um, you know, will work imperfectly at best. But if it were true that depression were simply a condition of, you know, an, an imbalance of certain neurotransmitters, then it really is at the level of neurotransmitters and their receptor sites that we need to think about the problem. But then that's not to deny that it doesn't have all of these other implications out in the world of behavior and relationship and culture and facial presentation and, and all of that. So it's just, it depends on what we're talking about. And certain things really can be addressed or at least part of what's of interest about them can be addressed at the level of the brain. Yeah, there's a lot to respond to there. I, I should not be, I would not want to be understood as denying the importance of the brain because, of course, even in my analogies, the brain is acknowledged as a crucial component subsystem of the animal or the person <clears throat> or the agent or the organism. My concern is with making sense of the role that the brain plays in the system in the right way. Most light, you know, what lights up neural correlate experiments are not illuminating about that at all. They don't illuminate the nature of the practice that's being studied, and they don't illuminate the brain in a way that's informed by any biological theory of the brain and how the brain's biology relates to cognition. So I think, and, and why am I targeting these studies? Because people often invoke them as somehow justifying the reality or validating the reality and efficacy of meditation. Right. Well, so we're going to agree about much of that, I, I think. Right. But, okay. Yeah. So, so now, in the case of the, of the depression analogy, I'm going to wind up saying the same kinds of things that I say when I talk about Yo-Yo Ma or the parenting analogy or the bird flying analogy. If there were a drug that targeted certain specific populations of neurons and neurotransmitters and it could be administered and had effects on people, that's one thing. To say that it would constitute a cure for depression is a wholly different kind of claim. Depression is something that if it, if it were the kind of depression that a person suffers because they're profoundly alienated living under late-stage capitalism and they are fundamentally disturbed by what they take to be the structural injustices of late-stage capitalism and its destruction of the environment, to make them compliant under the administration of such a pill 
would not be to cure their depression. It would be a kind of George Orwell or Aldous Huxley Brave New World, where it basically took away their perception of something about the environment that they were in and eliminated their any any sense of motivation to to do anything about it. It's just, you know, to, to kind of miss the point of the of the of the importance of the environment of the environment and the body. Well, well, let me just jump in there, because I actually I think you're missing the point of my point there. It's not that I'm saying there's there's nothing more to depress. I mean, this is an interesting ethical question about, you know, whether if we had a cure for sadness or grief and it came in pill form, how long should you wait after the person closest to you dies before taking that pill? You know, when is too soon to feel good? after the love of your life dies, well, I think you could certainly argue that you would you would never take that pill, depending. Mm-hmm. And you certainly wouldn't take it within 30 seconds of the person dying, right? While well, their, their body is still warm, you're popping a pill and, and now you, you don't feel sad at all. That's obviously not honoring any of our ethical connections to the people we love. And it's just an interesting ethical question. What would be normative here, given a perfect ability to intrude pharmacologically or otherwise into human experience. But the actual point of contact with with my example here is if someone is depressed by late-stage capitalism, certain things will be true of their brain. Whatever the, the neural correlates of depression are, again, maybe there's 20 different types of depression, right? And we're, we have this folk psychological notion of, of this type of suffering and they're importantly different. But let's let's say there's just one and late stage capitalism and its its various indignities can be a stimulus for this state of mind. It will have some description at the level of this person's brain and therefore understanding the, the neural correlates of depression is not the only thing that can be said about depression, but the brain really is playing an overwhelmingly important and governing role here in a way that the, that the liver and the pancreas and the kidneys and the lungs aren't. So insofar as this cognition or emotion is embodied, it really is a story of what the brain is doing, as witnessed by the fact that if we had a cure for this emotion, if we could relieve you of your, of your late-stage capitalistic depression for an hour, just to give you a break, we would do that not by intervening in the liver or the lungs or the pancreas, but in the brain. And in a complete understanding of the mind and you know its dependence on the brain, you know, that could be a, an incredibly precise intervention such that you'd really have an hour free of depression, you know, Orwellian or Aldous Huxley-like or not. And we would understand the causal mechanism of it, and, and hence the primacy of neural tissue in this kind of discussion as opposed to any other tissue. Well, I would I would say actually even in the even in the thought experiment you've described, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's described properly. What what would happen in such a circumstance is you might relieve the negative affect component of depression, but it's not at all clear to me that what you would have done is relieve depression because the depression involves so many other things that have to do with how the world is perceived and understood. Okay, but everything else, all those other switches and dials exist within the brain, right? So just just give me a little more room to run and I can make those changes. I'll give you an hour where you don't care about late-stage capitalism. In fact, you, you know, you've forgotten all about it. Or 
you think differently about it. Now, now you're the most rapacious Ayn Randian we've ever heard of, who just wants to extract more and more from the ground and everywhere else, and future generations be damned. That is a state of someone's brain even now, and it could be a state of yours, or, or, or the, you know, this person in this thought experiment, given the right manipulations. And again, these would be these would be manipulations of the brain, not of any other part of the human body. Right, but I think we're I think we're losing losing focus on on the issue, at least as I understand the the, the issue, and that is the, the the brain is a is a necessary subsystem for cognition. In an, it's it's a crucial subsystem in a way that is of course different from the liver or the kidney. I should say maybe not just the brain, actually, the nervous system, because there's complicated issues here about the relationship of the nervous system. The, the to, enteric nervous system. Yeah, to, you know, the gut brain and to, you know, glial cells, to aspects of the organism that classically aren't part of the brain or the nervous system, but that as we learn more and more are actually quite functionally interconnected with them in ways that impact mood and cognition and, and other sorts of things. So in any case, the, the, the claim is just as in the case of the, you know, the wings of the bird, the claim is not that the, the brain is not a crucial system and that intervening on the brain doesn't make a difference. It's a claim about necessary and sufficient conditions and how you characterize and understand the phenomenon that you're studying such that different forms of investigation become relevant, different neuroscientific forms and then other forms that I very much consider to be within cognitive science, but that aren't, but that aren't neuroscience. They're, you know, anthropology or cognitive behavioral psychology. And I have no, indeed, I've been an advocate for the cognitive science of meditation. But what I think needs to happen is that a more sophisticated perspective that for me is very well articulated and put together under the framework of embodied cognition, a more sophisticated cognitive science perspective needs to be brought to bear on studying contemplative practices to understand them in ways that neuroimaging simply cannot do. Neuroimaging alone, yeah. Neuroimaging yeah, alone. I mean, certainly. the emphasis on, on a... There, there's been a huge emphasis on a kind of neuroimaging window onto contemplative practices. And I think that that most of what's been done, not all, but most of what's been done doesn't really illuminate either the brain from the point of view of understanding it as a cognitive system or the practices themselves. Now, there are exceptions. And so I do want to mention some some work that I think is is very promising and very interesting. So some of the work that's been done on the differential effects of different types of meditation practices on the perception and experience of pain, that I think is, is very promising work and has important clinical, clinical implications for using you know, meditation as a strategy for, for pain management. Mm. So I think, I think that work is, is very good. Why is it good? Because it's in, we know so much about pain physiologically and biopsychosocially. So there's, there's a kind of theoretical framework that's very developed that we can bring the meditation findings into and, and bring the two of them to bear on each other that I, that I think is really quite promising and illuminating. But I don't think that putting, you know, adept Zen practitioners 
or Dzogchen or Mahamudra practitioners into a scanner and just seeing, you know, what lights up or how they respond to, I don't know, different kinds of semantic priming in different ways. I don't think that's particularly interesting in the sense that I don't think it really illuminates the practices and I don't think it tells us much about the brain as a cognitive system. Well, I would put much of this critique in the bin of just how primitive the tools have been all these years, right? It's like this is, in some sense, a check we have not been able to fully cash in neuroscience. And I remain hopeful that it really is just a matter of time but I, w- I would grant you that certain experiments are just misconceived, and even in, in, a, in the presence of perfect mind-reading machines, you wouldn't be getting information that's of interest. But uh, let, let me actually add something else into the mix here. Just uh, you know, I feel like I'm I'm going to be heard as being hard on on scientists, and and I don't want to be taken that way. And I, I apologize to any scientists who are who are listening to this. Um, you know, some of the scientists who do work in this area are. Are good friends of mine, and I don't—I don't mean to be, to be criticizing, you know, their their aims and their efforts. I mean to be pointing to, the 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 need for a kind of richer framework, and and why I'm pointing that at is because I I see in a lot of the work that's going on, especially in its in its maybe larger cultural setting today, something that. Many of us witnessed in the 1970s in the form of research that was done on transcendental meditation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for those who, who don't know, there, there, was a, there was an explosion of interest in research on meditation in the 1970s, in a way, a kind of first wave of research antecedent to what's, been, to what's going on today. And it was, it was done on transcendental meditation, the, the kind of neo-Vedanta system of, of mantra and breath awareness practice from the from the uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And a lot of the research was done by people who were themselves TM practitioners, who were antecedently committed to the validity and value of TM practice. Mm. And I see something similar happening today in that a lot of the people who do work on mindfulness are either you know Buddhist practitioners themselves or, or very committed to secular mindfulness as a as a way of let's say being spiritual but but not religious and they use the scientific work or they pursue the scientific work because they're they're you know invested in legitimizing it and often with you know good motives they you know they want to help people they want to make the world a better place but they're invested in a kind of legitimization project that we saw in an earlier generation it's very easy to criticize the earlier generation and say oh well you know the science wasn't very good. The controls weren't very good. Or, or they were publishing from Maharishi Mahesh Yogi right. University. They were, they were coming out of exactly. They were coming out of the university. They weren't published maybe in his in his good journals. And so the, there's no doubt that the standards today are way better, and the quality of the research is way better. But if you step back and look at it more with, let's say, the eyes of I don't know a historian or a sociologist, you can't help but notice some pretty strong common threads and and similarities. And I think one way to get beyond that is to bring a more nuanced and sophisticated cognitive science perspective that has a kind of inbuilt reflexivity where we include things like anthropologists and 
the anthropology of science, of lab life, and how we how we articulate and understand the phenomena that we're studying, I think that will make the science better. And that's why I'm advocating for this. That's why it's it's so important to me. Hmm. I'm trying to think of a, an analogy that dissects out the difference between our, our views here. You know, I, I get the sense that we agree about a lot and disagree about a lot, but I, I don't know that it, it's totally gelled for me. And, you know, if it hasn't gelled for me, I, I'm not sure it's going to gel for our listeners, uh, although some may notice our disagreements better than, than either of us do. Here, here's a thought of experiment that just occurred to me that I'd be interested to get your take on. Because much of what you say around the sort of an active, embodied framework as opposed to the the mere locus in the brain, the importance of culture, the way in which you know, concepts and even you know religious dogmas leak into any consideration of, of what's going on here. All of that suggests to me that you, you, you may view this circumstance a little differently than I do. So what I'm imagining is and this also speaks to the, the possibility of a, a first-person science of the mind as opposed to a merely third-person one. And so bringing phenomenology and you know introspection directly into the methodology of science. I'm imagining that someone could, someone could be in, a, in an epistemic solitude. I mean, just imagine somebody is marooned on a desert island, and they don't have any special associations with any of the things we've been talking about. They're, you know, they're competent users of English. They have never been indoctrinated into one or another religious tradition. They have a minimal understanding of human culture. And um, I mean, just make this as generic and as unrelated to the kinds of things, you know, as uncommitted, uh, you know, to any points of the sort we've been talking about uh, as you want. Obviously, we can't strip away all culture, but someone who's just they're you know they're not a christian they're not a buddhist they're not a they're not a jew they're not they haven't taken on any project in the area we've described and i imagine this person on a desert island just contemplating the waves and the sky and their own place in the world from you know necessarily the first person point of view there's no one for them to talk to they can't triangulate on themselves through dialogue with anyone else and then you just imagine you know putting a message in a bottle that gets to them, and it could be a short text very much like the one from Padma Zambaba I just read, and given a minimal comprehension of those terms, they could use that recipe, you know, use the injunctions implicit in those sentences to pay attention in a certain way, you know, to fully bake the cake that is promised, you know, within Buddhism. They can't bake the any of the other aspects to this meal that you know most Buddhists through the ages have wanted or people in other religions have wanted. I mean, there's no there's no reference to the magical properties of the historical Buddha or karma and rebirth or anything else. They're not going to get those doctrines out of it. But in terms of recognizing what it is to be conscious and what what the base layer of consciousness is like when you're not distracted, and having that, being able to essentially have that text capture their experience in the end after they've paid sufficient attention, I think that's a, an intelligible project 
that could be consummated by, you know, a, a person in, in those conditions. And the legitimacy of it can't be dependent upon interaction with a wider culture, being able to convince other people that these insights are legitimate. I mean, it's not an, it's no longer an intersubjective project. It's no longer a, you know, a, a matter of ritual. Certainly, it's not, it's not a matter of, you know, ramifying one's commitment to anything outside the, that moment-to-moment -moment experience of turning consciousness upon its own evidence. And I, so I'm just wondering what you, what do you think about the claim I'm making there? Well, I mean, there's, there are aspects of the description of the thought experiment that I would want to challenge, I suppose, and then there's how to think about what the purported result is. So the aspects I would want to challenge are to think that this person is somehow stripped of culture, stripped of worldview. I, I, I don't think that that's possible. The, you know, the person is, as you said, an English language speaker, so they've grown up in a linguistic community. They've internalized the norms of that community. Our society, even our secular society, has deeply embedded within it in terms of you know the kinds of values that we have a lot of elements from from a religious history coming out of you know Christianity and 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 Judaism so the idea that such a person would somehow land on this island as a as a sort of naked non-conceptual non-linguistic subject i don't i don't think that that's actually intelligible or coherent there there couldn't be such a person so now if we're imagining that we have some secularized... But, but, but they, they could be a person. I mean, I know what it's like to have been a person who had zero interest in meditation, zero religious indoctrination, and no indoctrination into anti-religion. It's not, you know, I, I didn't even have a concept of atheism. You know, obviously I spoke English and I, I knew other people were religious. I mean, I had associations with these terms, but it's like it's possible to basically have no interest in this and then if you throw me on a desert island with nothing else to do, and the, the one book I find is a very short book by Padmasambhava, I can begin running that code on my brain. And my argument is, it is intelligible to say that a person under, you know, under those conditions could have an insight into selflessness, an insight into the mechanics of his own suffering that very much bears out many of the claims of Buddhism. Like why do we suffer and how do we overcome suffering and how is grasping at pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant part of that psychophysics and I mean all of these things can be empirically interrogated from the first person side given a minimal description of how to run the experiment attentionally for oneself you know and, and again that can be done in solitude and, and yeah, all that so, historically was done in solitude but. so so Okay, so a, n a number of things. So yes, you arrive. You, you you know you didn't have a religious upbringing. You didn't have an anti-religious upbringing. Nonetheless, so you have no maybe overt reflective interest in any of these things. But nonetheless, your sensibility as a person has been profoundly culturally shaped by these things, whether you've taken an interest in them or not. So you arrive on the island as such a person. You are fundamentally an enculturated being, and you arrive on this island. And now you receive in the bottle a text like this. It might speak to you. It might not. Individuals are different. Let's suppose it does speak to you. 
and you make some sense of it and you have various experiences as a result. That seems to me entirely possible. However, the idea that you learn, in, you gain insight into the nature of suffering and its mechanics and how to deal with it, that strikes me as extremely implausible. To have, to have any insight into that, you have to be in a community interacting with other people. You, you're, you're not going to have any insight into suffering unless you're with fellow beings. You can think you have all the insight into, you know, one or another thing on a desert island, but whether that insight has any carryover into, you know, human life is a, is a, is a whole other matter. So, sure, I mean, you know, something, something could happen to you when you read the text, you know. You could also be, someone might put, you know, Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching, or someone might put Meister Eckhart's Cloud of Unknowing, or, you know, St. John of the Cross, you know, in a bottle. Any individual could be spoken to by any of these texts, have profound experiences as a result that they feel are beneficial and transformative. Of course, I, I, I don't see anything, uh, any reason to deny that. But what follows from that is a whole other matter. Well, just what follows from that is that there's no reason why a solitary scientist couldn't use the first-person part of their interrogation of nature as part of their increasing understanding of, in this case, the human mind, you know, their own, the only, the only human mind they've ever had direct contact with, right? So to understand something about suffering and the end of suffering, right, to use kind of Buddhist terminology, the legitimacy of that isn't dependent upon the wider world, unless you're making this I mean, you, you did essentially just make that claim that there's just no way to be, to think that you've understood anything about suffering and the end of suffering unless we throw you on a bus with a bunch of other people and see how you do, right? Like yeah, I do, I do believe that, actually. I mean, this, this, this is something that I, I, I think is part of the, part of the nature of, of suffering. I mean, we're not talking just about physical pain here. We're talking about mental suffering that involves so presumably you're quite lonely you're on a desert island you miss your mom you miss your your friends and now you're given a goad to introspection in in the form of a, a minimal buddhist primer on mindfulness and now you can see the the, the dynamics of your own lo loneliness right loneliness is a form of mental suffering the grief around being separated from you know everyone that you love is a form of mental suffering and you're now told to run this experiment on yourself by paying attention to it in a specific way and lo and behold it works as advertised you know you can come to the end of suffering and see the dynamics of its re-arising in the case of being lost in thoughts of loneliness yet again and all of this is something you couldn't do the day before before you had a concept of mindfulness, but now you can do it, and now you're now you believe you're understanding something about the nature of suffering, the nature of its you know relief from it, and the, the nature of your own mind. And I'm saying I'm, I'm saying several things about this. One is that this is part of science. This is a first-person part of science that you know ha obviously has third-person correlates that we would want to use to triangulate with it uh, or on it. We might want to scan your brain at a certain point in this experiment. But again, the legitimacy of this is, I just don't see how this, we can't bound this 
around you, the person on a desert island, why it has to su somehow be linked up with a wider culture or, or suddenly becomes all unintelligible for us. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't count as science and it doesn't have the sufficient epistemological criteria or tests to count as insight unless it's within that wider context. There's no way in the well, thought experiment as described to specify whether but, but that's just not the true. person I mean, is that, that's consoling a... themselves with this text and is making themselves feel better. And the very idea that suffering is is being eliminated, um, that depends on on you know what we think suffering is and what it would mean to eliminate it. And all uh, all of those things depend on some you know criteria that have to do with a with a tradition and a community of in, of investigators. Otherwise, it's 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 completely underspecified. Well, it's it's not underspecified. It's just it hasn't been promulgated and pressure tested and criticized and used to persuade other people yet because there's no other people. But are you saying you're, you're saying that a person can't do science in solitude? That's just not true. I mean, you know, to take the, the most profitable 18 months in, in the life of any scientist in human history. I mean, you got Isaac Newton in solitude hiding from the plague. And, you know, he invented whole fields of science plus the calculus. Right. It's like you, right. You, yes, but that's not the, that's not my claim. Of course, you know, you can go into solitude and you can, you know, theorize, you can do mathematics, you can you can engage in thought experiments. Uh, of, of course, you can you can do all that. But that doesn't mean that science isn't a collective cultural enterprise. Well, Similarly, well, in, it, it is, but it's of, not. It is as a descriptive fact of human culture, I mean, how people become scientists, but it, as a matter of epistemology, it does not depend upon anyone else being involved or you, I mean, it's possible for one person to be right and everyone else to be wrong, right? So it's possible to be the one person who has the right theory in hand and everyone thinks you're an imbecile. From the cultural point of view, you've got a dunce cap on, but from the, the epistemological frame, you're the one person who has facts in hand, and that's that's just a possible condition of scientific culture. And that's not best described as the necessary and sufficient conditions for good science or real science is having persuaded enough people around you of certain facts, right? I mean, you, yeah, like if, if we put you in a time machine and sent you back to the 14th century and you were trying to explain the germ theory of disease to people, it wouldn't matter if you couldn't convince anyone I mean, the, the legitimacy of what you're saying about viruses would be unchanged if you could, had no takers for that particular framework, right? And they're they're dying by virus by viruses all the while. Yeah, but I think I think we're losing losing track of what the issue is here, or, or I'm not clear on what on what the issue has become because to, to to claim that science is a collective cultural enterprise is not to say that you can't go and do solitary work. It's to say that the tools you're using and the whole scientific enterprise is, is built out of and is constituted by cultural materials, language, symbol systems, traditions, mentorship, standing on the shoulders of giants. I mean, all of these things are, are collective and, and cultural. Now, Meditation, similarly, you can go and you can become a hermit, but a hermit is a social role. It's supported in some societies more than others. 
it's it's valorized in some societies more than others, but it's a social role and your the very understanding of what you're doing as a hermit is constituted through social traditions and through meaning and the practices that you're engaging in are ones that have been handed down to you through generations. So now if if the thought experiment is meant to to somehow strip away all of that to be some kind of minimal case, well, the difficulty there is that you, you can't really do that. You can strip away some contingent things, but you can't strip away the, the constitutive phenomena of culture and language, even in the case of your, your, your person on the island. So fine, we'll, we'll, let that, we'll, we'll let that stand and we'll go with the example. Now, now we have the person on the island, they receive this text in a bottle, Padmasambhava. So, I mean, they make whatever sense of it they make and they engage in a practice and it has effects on them. What those effects are, are not possible to determine in the experiment as described. To describe them as overcoming suffering. What do you mean it's not possible to determine if if the cash value of any of these effects is the change in the person himself. Take, take a clearer but, but case. That's not the cash value, though. That's let's take, let's take something value. that's less, less ambiguous than overcoming suffering. Let's say the person was uh, you know, deaf or blind, and meditation cured deafness or blindness, right? So the going from, I can't see anymore, to, oh, now I can see. Does that require some outside authentication to actually be be valid? I mean, well, I, just, I, I just don't see how you, you would say that the person himself can't judge any of these things until he gets off the desert island and starts talking to people. Well, again, we need to keep in view what, what the issue is, right? So, I mean, the issue as I understand it is... Well, actually, so so let, let me ask you what what is the issue because because I took you to be saying that you could engage in a kind of isolated first person investigation that would reveal to you the true nature of things. Is that the claim? Well, the true nature of some things or a truer nature of some things than you had in hand before you ran this experiment. You can make genuine discoveries about the world by paying attention to it, and you can make genuine discoveries about the mind by paying attention to it. And some of these discoveries are have, you know, to use your terms, soteriological force or implications or, or would be sought for reasons of wanting to feel better, to overcome suffering, even to overcome it ultimately. Some of it is epistemology in practice, and some of it is therapy for the human condition, right? But all of it can be grounded in a kind of empiricism that doesn't have to be propped up by lies or self-deception or unjustified beliefs. And it, its legitimacy isn't predicated upon the rest of culture in the way that you seem to suggest. It's not to say that it isn't as a descriptive matter embedded in culture virtually all the time for almost everyone who engages the project because we I mean we're swimming in culture like fish in water for every moment of our lives most of us and yes how we get this person to 
to their desert island with the minimal cultural toolkit sufficient to understand what Padmasambhava wrote so that they, he or she can actually use it. That's a bit of a finessing of the thought experiment there, but I'm convinced that it, it could be minimal enough that it wouldn't make any sense to say, oh, no, that's, that's really all just a matter of culture as the operating system there. That's what explains this transformation of the person. Okay. I mean, no more so th- than, you know, somebody who has, you know, incredible mathematical aptitude, but, you know, zero exposure to mathematics being put on a desert island and being given the minimal set of, you know, axioms by which to make discoveries for himself. I mean, some, you know, Ramanujan-like character who just did not have any of the benefits of good mathematical culture, but you, you just, you know, poke him with, you know, a few lines from Euclid or whoever, and he's off and running and making genuine progress, right? There's a spiritual or contemplative version of that. And again, it's those facts are facts about the person, and they don't suddenly become facts the moment he convinces lots of people in white lab coats that this really happened. Okay, so it's not part of my thinking that there isn't a role for phenomenological investigation of the mind. I think, and this is another part of how I think about cognitive science, I think that cognitive science, particularly when it becomes the cognitive science of consciousness, requires, necessarily involves a kind of phenomenological investigation. So I don't dispute that at all. I don't dispute that somebody could be on an island and could engage in phenomenological investigations, contemplative phenomenological investigations, that those could bring about profound transformations in their experience or or in their awareness, and that those transformations could be understood from the outside if such a person were to, you know, refer, return to civilization. So I don't dispute any of that. I, however, would take issue with the idea that the Padmasambhava text contains a message that is being received by that person and is being implemented in their experience in a way that would attain or achieve what Padmasambhava understood himself to be doing in writing that text. I strongly doubt that, because to think that is to decontextualize the idea of dismantling the subject-object structure of awareness and taking it offline and tapping into some to some you know deeper level of 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 awareness it's to decontextualize that from the whole meaning that that has in 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 buddhism for somebody like padmasambhava it's to decontextualize it from the buddhist soteriological framework actually there's many soteriological frameworks cuz some traditions in Buddhism would value that kind of experience more than others, but it's to decontextualize it from that. It's to take it out of the soteriological context of Buddhism. It's also to take it out of the understanding of something like the Bodhisattva path of compassion for all sentient beings. So, yeah, but, but, yeah but, there's again, an experience you, you there, but the that. idea that it's this transcultural 
universal human spiritual experience that's the same for a Buddhist and the same for the person on the desert island. No, I don't see any reason to believe that. Okay, well, this is a, this is a great place to land. I, th I think we can, we have gone a good long while here. <laughs> I guess we have. Yeah. <laughs> what I'd like to do, I, I never thought of doing this, but this seems apropos. I just want to read this this Padmasambhava text again. Again, this was picked at random. I, this is not picked because I think this is the best text we could possibly be doing this with. But it could be interesting to read each line of this. There's about 10 here. And just get our different sense of what is here. Because I, I do see this very much as a... It's almost like a fire starter. But what you just said is... Yeah, he may be able to take the the fire starter and his pocket knife and get sparks and he may be able to get a fire uh, you know even a very large bonfire out of that but it won't be the same kind of fire that Padmasambhava intended or the kinds of fires that have you know lit the lamps of Buddhists over the ages where you land here just really does not compute for me for, for the most part so here's a line how do you what does this do to you in the present moment when your mind remains in its own condition without constructing anything, awareness at that moment in itself is quite ordinary. Okay, so that is a... I wouldn't even know we're necessarily in, with the Buddhists yet, right? But this is, this is simply a statement about... Yeah, but, but Sam, I mean, there's a problem here, right? And that is, one, the text was written in Sanskrit, probably only existing in a Tibetan translation. It's going into English. It's one line out of a text. It's taken out of context. So, I mean, I can give all sorts of meanings to that statement just taken out of context in that way. I might be able to implement it, you know, in a, in a sort of transformative way in my own experience that would, that would alter me going forth. All of that's possible. But it's, it's, it's such an underdetermined thing because People can read all sorts of things into that statement, decontextualized that way. Well, yes, but my point is you can read precisely the things into it that allow you to recognize the truth on offer. I mean, in this case, the, you know, the central truth on offer in this tradition, you know, the Dzogchen tradition of the, the illusoriness of the subject-object divide in perception, the spurious CEO, self, the subject in the head, that thing can be deconstructed or, or be recognized to be illusory by following an all too plausible interpretation of, of every word in this text. And there's, there's just not, there's not too much jargon in here apart from the appearance of the word emptiness that has to be further defined. Again, it's just, I, I just don't see the... But I'm not disputing that you, that you, can't, you can't take offline or deconstruct. My intuition here is that the recognition of, the, of you know, consciousness without the sense of subject-object divide, right? And all of the efforts that have been traditionally made to describe that. Again, it's, it's always being described in the context of a culture, in the context of a, of a religious culture, for the most part. What seems to me absolutely clear is that there's an experience here that transcends culture. I mean, there are many things that don't transcend culture. I will, I will grant you that. But there are experiences that, that are 
universal in the sense that they represent something deeper about the human mind itself. Though they will ultimately be understood in a, now to use terms that you use in your book, in a totally non-sectarian and cosmopolitan context, in a context that's free from yeah, I don't, religious I don't provincialism. That, I don't dispute that either. So, so um, I mean, it seems to me that there are many plausible candidate human universals, language, you know, various aspects of visual and auditory perception involving segmentation and object persistence through time and, you know, the kinds of things cognitive scientists study. Many of mm -hmm. them, I think, can get expressed and, and vary in, in various cultural ways, but that, but that are, you know, are human universals. And similarly, I mean, I don't think we know this definitively, but I would say there's reason, reason to think for a variety of empirical and philosophical reasons that the nature of awareness independent of a subject-object structure is, is a human universal. It's probably, it's, pro it's probably a mammalian universal. It could be a universal across life as, as such. You know, the, the basic sort of nature of sentient awareness could, could be universal across all life. I mean, this all seems plausible to me. And I and I don't have an issue with that. So I don't I don't want us to get caught up arguing about that because I I, I, I do think that that is a possibility for sure. Okay, but you seem to doubt that the target insight of this practice, say, and th this being non-dual mindfulness practice, you seem to think that that is culture bound in ways that are every bit as parochial as you know worshiping Kali. In a temple, uh, oh, off the no, no, I, no, I think, I think that, I think that when when we have a Dzogchen text or a Dzogchen practice or a Mahamudra text or a Matra Mudra practice, we're 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 dealing with a a culturally saturated system. It can nonetheless induce something like a an experience of non-duality it can do that but i think you know that that could also happen through the vehicle of other symbolisms and other discourses in other religious traditions that are that are theocentric or theologically oriented i think i think you know here we're really talking about what you know academics or religious scholars would talk about as mystical traditions and you know, mysticism is a difficult word. It's 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 maybe problematic and freighted in various ways, as is the word spiritual. But if if we want to use it, for lack of a better word, we could say that there are mystical traditions, and that they, in different ways, encourage and induce experiences that are meant to be transcendent of a subject-object structure or or a certain a certain sense of selfhood. How they then philosophically, metaphysically, religiously understand the, the the significance and value of those experiences may differ, but they 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 do seem to have this this commonality we could point to. I mean, in the in the academic study of mysticism, there's a lot of controversy around this, around the you know so-called perennialists versus constructivists, and I think. Leaving, leaving out those disputes, I, I, for the moment, I mean, we could get into them if you wanted, but leaving them out for the moment, I would, I would say that there, there are rich traditions of mysticism 
in Asia and the West that in their own ways can can bring about this kind of transcendent experience. Hmm. Well, I mean, given that it's a property of the human mind, it can be brought about in all kinds of ways. Right. I don't doubt that, you know, someone had this experience being thrown off a pirate ship, you know, or right. getting into a car accident, right? But, but mm-hmm. one wouldn't recommend those experiences as paths of practice. And my criticism of back to my to where we started, my Buddhist exceptionalism here is that there's an unusually clear core of teachings around this that are as uncontaminated by religious dogmatism as perhaps not not as uncontaminated as one could hope for, certainly not in, in every case, but if one wants to find it, one can find it easily as opposed to almost never in certain other contexts. This is a difference of of kind of signal to noise when you know what you're looking for. If you're, if you're, what you're looking for is an empirical path to recognizing the non-duality of consciousness. Well, then, w- without without having to believe in anything other than whatever the recommended use of attention is to bring that about. Well, then, parts of Buddhism are the best game in town. With some other things in the Indian tradition also being quite useful. It just seems like that that's obviously a value judgment and a, you know a comparison and a criticism a criticism of other traditions, but it's just it's just very hard to dispute because challenge someone to find the, the analogous thing in the Quran or the Bible, and it's just it's almost impossible to do. And well, so I, I would I would say two things there. One, I would say that here the historical perspective becomes important because the 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 feeling, that, oh, I, it's in Buddhism and it's not in, in something in the West is a bit illusory because the form in which it's articulated in modern Buddhism is so heavily determined and refracted by ideas that came from the West. So the way that Buddhist modernists articulate the, these ideas of pure awareness or pure consciousness in the form both of Vipassana and of, of Zen and also in, in modern Tibetan writings, these are very much uh, heavily conditioned by Protestantism, by American transcendentalism, and by European Romanticism. So it's not surprising in a way that we, we respond well to it because it's also been packaged in a way that's meant to be for us and to be, and to be familiar to us. And the whole way that we read texts like Padmasambhava is so heavily conditioned by this modern Buddhist, by this Buddhist modernism, which isn't Asian or Eastern. So the idea of Eastern exceptionalism is just historically inaccurate. It's thoroughly intertwined with, hybridized with European elements from from the evolution of of Christianity in, in particular. And so that's well, that's, well, that's a historical that. point. But, a I mean, a lot uh, of it. A lot some, of it is. <laughs> I mean, there's some of that when you're talking about Western translators, perhaps, but I mean, the reality is if you go and sit with somebody like Tulk Oregon or Kensi Rinpoche, well, you can't do that now, they're no longer alive, but, but when you could, you know, a few short decades ago, you know, these 75-year-old lamas certainly don't recommend themselves as the first people you would expect to have been browbeaten and enculturated by Protestantism and colonialism, and they're 
giving you the, the mind teachings that they got from their experience and their meditation masters and all their root texts are Tibetan. And if you, if you said what you just said about the influences here, they would have no idea what you were talking about. Yeah, that, that might be true in the case of those individuals. But I would say for the majority of Mahamudra and Dzogchen in, in the West, even in the case of teachers who come out of that lineage, like, you know, Tsokne Rinpoche, for example, and, and Mingyur Rinpoche and others, you know, the, the whole language and context of presentation in the West and, and, the, and the way that, you know, Buddhism is, has culturally evolved over the past 200 years very much in, informs their presentation as well. So it's neither, you know, Western nor Eastern. It's this kind of hybridized transnational thing. I mean, that's what, that's what Buddhist modernism is. So I think Buddhist exceptionalism just is insensitive to, this, to the complexity of that, of that of that history. So that, that was the first point. But the second point I wanted to make is that, you know, there are, there are texts, yeah, I, if, if you go to the Bible or the Quran, those texts are not probably the best ones to, to find something analogous to Padmasambhava. But if you go to, if you go to the Cloud of Unknowing or Meister Eckhart or parts of St. John of the Cross, or you read Neoplatonic writers like Plotinus or John Scotus Aragena. I mean, you, you find very, very similar kinds of things. Yeah. So again, if that's part of you know the, the history of mysticism, to use again a problematic term, but but it's part of the the I see that as kind of the human heritage of of mysticism, and I think exceptionalism, Buddhist exceptionalism, you know, distorts that. But it doesn't because it's exceptional in the sense that when you go to someone like Meister Eckhart. When you get the most analogous exponent of this kind of non-dual wisdom, what you're getting in a Christian or Jewish or Muslim context is almost invariably someone who is, at best, heterodox, and at worst, a genuine heretic. Right? I mean, someone who is—I mean, Meister Eckhart is the perfect example because the Inquisition was literally getting ready to burn him alive for his heresy, right? I mean, he just died in time to spare himself the stake. This is not what's going on in the Buddhist tradition or, the, or in the Advaita tradition within, within Hinduism. It's like the, the people who are most non-dual, the people who are most unencumbered by the mere traditional dogmatism, the, the moments where that, that a Westerner like myself would value them most, the moments most fit for export into a conversation of the sort we're having, those moments within the tradition are viewed as the summit of wisdom in that tradition. Whereas in Islam, those are the statements that are going to get you killed by your co-religionists. And that's, this is historically true and hence, and has been true for you know now over a thousand years. I mean, hence the exceptionalism. It's not that it's not there. It's not that you can't find Meister Eckhart in you know his clearest afternoon as a Christian, sounding very much like a Buddhist. But what he's saying there is not plausibly thought of as representative of Christianity in those moments. Well, so here I think maybe I should clarify what I mean by the word exceptionalism. So. Buddhist exceptionalism is on, you know, say the analogy with American exceptionalism. So American exceptionalism is the idea that 
Oh, the United States is unique among nations and has a and has a kind of unique historical mission that differentiates it from all other nations, makes it makes it special and unique. So that the claim of exceptionalism goes beyond a claim of difference and uniqueness. It it's it's a kind of value-laden claim of specialness. Now, in the case of Buddhist exceptionalism, the idea is that Buddhism is is not simply different and hence unique from other religious traditions. Of course it is. It's the claim that Buddhism is somehow special and has a a a kind of privileged special route into something that that other traditions don't have. So that's what I take issue with. Now, historically, of course, you're right that you know, r- religious persecution and 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 warfare especially in the in the European Middle Ages, you know, into the modern period was 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 terrible and many mystics were were persecuted and one could even say earlier, you know, that the that the mystical contemplative traditions in Christianity were were submerged or or suppressed at 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 various moments. So that that's un- undoubtedly true, but nonetheless they're there. And they're they're part of the larger phenomenon of religion and mysticism and of and of the Christian tradition, even if they didn't historically predominate in the ways that some of those traditions did in Asia. At the same time, let's not forget some of the events that happened. Well, for example, in the history of Buddhism, the the famous Samya debate in Tibet that pitted the the representative so-called representative Hushang, just means monk of the Chan most likely Chan mm. tradition against Kamala Shila who you know was one of the great Indian scholars and philosophers and and religious teachers scriptural masters of Indian Buddhism they they debated in in Tibet and the Tibetans adopted you know Indian Buddhism because they they took Kamala Shila to be the winner in that debate but Kamala Shila was murdered in that debate. There, there, you know, and then and there's been factional warfare and murder throughout Tibetan Buddhism. So I mean, it's not like you can't. Yeah, maybe not as much as in as in the West or as in Europe, you know. But it's not like it hasn't been there. Well, yeah, well, you, you no, there's, the there's certainly things. been sectarian conflict in every tradition. My point is just the what you are going to put in the basket of orthodoxy. And what is and what the Orthodox have have struggled to keep out, you know, low these these many centuries, and you know, part of the orthodoxy of Buddhism, among among the the tenets found there, are many of the of the things we've been talking about. What I would consider, you know, real insights into the nature of the mind that that are incredibly valuable to have, and because these are you know, general properties of human minds. And if you put people in solitude and ask them to pray to Jesus, you know, for years at a stretch, some number of those people will have some similar insights because, you know, they're running a, a similar experiment on themselves. But it is just, in fact, true that the deepest insights here, certainly insights into non-duality, have been considered, you know, unorthodox and heterodox and heretical in most of these other religions. And so they were suppressed. They were not in line with the with the doctrine, right? Whereas in Buddhism, 
they really are in line with with some of the doctrines. Again, there's there are debates, there are disagreements, and there's been tribalism and sectarianism and human conflict in Buddhist culture. There's no question of that. But it's just yeah. I would I would put it a little differently. I would say that it's not that they're more in line with the doctrine because for for many Buddhist traditions, the idea of of resting in a kind of subject objectless state is not considered to be what, you know, the whole story is about. It's just that, by and large, the, the, the Buddhist tradition and world has been more tolerant of a diversity of viewpoints than the Christian one. But it's, it's not as if that that's somehow specifically at the core of Buddhism, because we've been focusing on it here. It's, it's in Dzogchen, it's in Mahamudra, it comes especially out of the Yogacara philosophical tradition in, in Indian Buddhism. But that's really only one slice of Buddhism and many other schools, systems, traditions would would actually take issue with with that whole way of looking at it. Well, yeah, but so I mean, I guess the I'm not so focused on just the non-duality piece here, but it's just the the insight into selflessness, whether you come come at that by virtue of non-duality or the dualistic, you know, impermanence-based course of ordinary mindfulness. There's a lot to agree on here that is generally Buddhist and generally of interest to people who who want to understand the mind and our capacity to overcome suffering in a non-sectarian and again cosmopolitan way. I mean, just just let's use the best ideas of all of, of human culture that have appeared in the last three thousand years. What are they? And you know, well, let's let's make the best use of them. Some ideas are easier to strip out of their origin story, and some are much harder, and some some it just can't be done at all, right? And I mean, that's where I think the exceptionalism lies. Maybe exceptionalism is too strong a word. It's just that it's just not an accident that we're, we're talking about Buddhism here and rather than some other nominal religion, right? It's just some religions just don't have... You know, again, it's the needle in the haystack phenomenon. But Evan, I realize now we've gone, you know, we are exceptionalist in our own right because we've gone over three hours that is uh, here. rather remarkable. <laughs> this is the limit of uh, our audience's tolerance and uh, also the limit of a human bladder. <laughs> it's probably beyond the limit of the audience, yeah. audience's tolerance, I fear. <laughs> so, But it was great. It was great to get you here and great to um, wrangle about all these things and... Uh, Thanks for what you're doing. I, I recommend people read your book. It was very, very interesting and, and useful. And um, I hope we get round two on uh, just wider topics in cognitive science someday, because there's, there's a lot to uh, discuss about the mind. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Thanks for inviting me. And um, I hope the listeners enjoy the conversation. 